Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Citation to Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition. For all you kids out there, the official podcast of your baseball prospectus Mets local site. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me once again this week is Jarrett Seidler. Jarrett, a large part of the agenda for the first half of the show is just stuff you've been mad online about this week. It's been very mad online. Uh, but, but they won three games in a row, so... Are we less know. mad online now? I'm still pretty fucking mad about Ahmed Rosario, but... Which we'll get to in the first half of the show. We'll talk about... Uh, the stuff, as promised, the stuff that Jared's been mad online about, which includes Ahmed Rosario, probably some bullpen stuff. The Sean Gilmartin DFA you were G-chatting me angrily about today while I was at the park. I mean, it's it's just, it's an exa- it's another example of bottom roster mismanagement. Sure. Also, always mad about big it. red flag, Terry hit for Conforto today against the left. Yes, I also got G-chatted about that. That's a big red, and he made a quote after the game that indicated that La Conforto and Flores have earned roster spots they perhaps have not earned long-term starting spots with him. It's literally the two best hitters on the team right now, but okay. They've played their way onto the roster, but no. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, literally, Wilmer Flores was well, never Flores not is... going to be on the roster because he's out of fucking options. He's also got only got two years of team control left because he's an arbitration eligible this year. And, you know, at worst, Wilmer Flores is, like, a really good... Like, coming into the season, at worst, he was a really good fifth infielder. Yes, and lefty basher. You're not just going to cut that dude. I mean, uh, they could. We don't pay Terry's salary, Jarrett, so we're not allowed to comment on this. Yes, we don't pay Terry's salary. Although, you know, I am a season ticket holder, so indirectly I do. Yeah, yeah, okay, you're one of those people, that's great. I'm not, I'm not actually making that point, but... Also in the first half of the show, talk about who might actually be the second best hitter on the Mets team, uh, and that's Lucas Duda. And what oh. the Mets should do with Lucas Duda going forward. Sure. We'll also preview, in quotes, preview, the 2017 first-year player draft, which may already be started by the time you listen to this show. Depends on when you listen to this show. Recording it on Sunday night. The first-year player draft is Monday night. But that's fine, because we don't have any... Uh, we have no special insight <laughs> no about special this. That's going to pick at 20. I would like them to pick Keston here. I don't think they're going to. I don't think he's going to be there. I don't think he's going to be there either. I mean, I'd like really like him to pick like Brandon McKay or yeah, Hunter yeah. Green, but those guys aren't also, going to be there. They're not either. going to be there, I know. Yeah, we'll talk a little so, bit about who might be there and who the Mets have been linked to in various mock drafts online over the last few weeks because whatever, it's something to talk about. We'll also talk about players that have been drafted, are in the minors, and that we've seen recently, because we need to catch up on that after I promised it last week in the open and didn't deliver because of a second was already running long. Dying for my Eric Fetty scouting report. The other thing we didn't talk about last week, after I promised we talked about it every week, is the teams the Mets have played recently. So this week we're rectifying that by doing a whole segment on it in the second half of the show with Kate Morrison. 
which we already recorded, but we didn't actually talk about the Texas Rangers that much. We talked about them some. We talked about we also talked a little about, bit. We talked about the Cubs, who the Mets are playing this week. Sure, so. close enough. It's... And we talked about prospects and other stuff. All those fun things. The third half of the show will answer your email. Take your Facebook queries and, oh, that's me another very long wrestling segment, because Jarrett went to another show and then got up at 5 in the morning to watch uh, Omega Okada 2, and he has some takes. I have takes, although apparently they're not very hot. No, apparently not. Like, they are hot, but they aren't hot. Yeah. I haven't watched hashtag, it yet. Hashtag seven stars. <laughs> so it's a, uh, as, as usual, a jam-packed show. I'd say it's, uh, I'm not even going to promise a short show because I know it's not going to happen. I'd prefer it would be, but it's just not going to be. So we'll soldier on and we'll start, I guess, with the first thing you were mad online about this week. And that is that Ahmed Rosario is not ready offensively to help the New York Mets. So, by any reasonable expectation, the call-up date for Super 2s is passed. As I tweeted, the two teams that are going to wait the longest other than the Mets to call up Super 2s are the Astros and the Brewers. They're the most process-oriented, cheapest teams in the majors. And they both called up their dudes this week. Yep. So, there you go. Um, I mean, you know, what's on that Rosario hit now? Three thirty-eight. I didn't check today's line, but it's something like, like two that. for four or something. Yeah, I you know, um, obviously is a very good defensive shortstop as we've discussed. Although the Mets will tell you because of the amount of errors he's made, you know, his fielding percentage isn't that much better than Estrubal Cabrera's. Come on, guys. Maybe they should move that uh. AAA affiliate to a place to have in fields that are Japanese rock gardens, essentially. Yeah. What would a Cerebral Cabrera field on Cashman <laughs> Field back in 80? Uh, a Cabrera looks... I, I, he's either done or compromised. And I'm guessing he's compromised because... Sure, I, yeah. I mean, he was... I, th- I feel like he was fine before the initial spat of injuries six weeks ago or whatever it was. Like, he looked and, like you know, Cabrera. He's still gimping around. He's still on it. There was a there was a double play that they turned in this game, this Sunday game, um, that the announcers and some people on Twitter, it, it was originally ruled not a double play, and then it was overturned on replay to a double play, and people were going about, this is the most best play the Mets infield has made all year. It was a fucking routine double play ball. It took him forever to get to it. And that took him forever to get it out of his glove, and he didn't like the quarterback option flip instead of a hard throw. That was the only reason it was even close. It was like if if a league average shortstop was there, they would have fielded it in a normal fielding position, made a normal throw, and the runner would have been out by four steps at first. And as we've said before on the podcast, like it became, a very, Cabrera, good, it became a very good key t- keystone turn by Neil Walker to actually get him. As Drew and Cabrera is, was being moved off shortstop three years ago. Right. And he had a season that I think Mets fans, and perhaps even the Mets fooled themselves, largely based on Gary Cohen talking about how great he was, well, into so, thinking so, he was actually great when he was just a lot better than what the Mets had been running out there. When you've been running out twos and threes, fours and 45s look awful good. And when he's healthy, he's never been the he's rangiest a four guy, 45. but he's fine. He's got good hands, he's got a good arm, He, you know, everything plays up a little bit. 
And, you know, he's had a series of leg injuries for the last year or so, which it doesn't take much to really take that range from being something he has to cover with his arm and his hands to something he just can't. And because the range is starting to get stretched, he's starting to rush things, which leads to more errors. Also, you know, being physically compromised leads to mental errors, which he's made a number of. It's just not good. And the idea that a team that is struggling to stay in contention has one of the two best shortstop prospects in baseball and yet is still regularly running out as Drupal Cabrera and Jose Reyes in the infield. Even when, like, Cabrera was actually on the DL. Because, <laughs> you know, guess what, folks? Terry's back to Jose Reyes as his regular third baseman and Wilmer Flores bouncing around the infield again. And, you know, I don't think anybody's really noticed because Flores hasn't sat yet, but Terry's given those same goddamn quotes he gave about Alejandro de Azo last year, we have to get Jose Reyes hot. It, we have to. We just have to. The dude's hitting fucking 185 now. He's been ice cold again. You know, Curtis Granderson at least has been playing adequate baseball for the last month, month and a half. It's still going to be a fucking crime when they cut Conforto's playing time for Curtis Granderson. Don't get me wrong. And they're going to, unless something weird happens. The tea leaves are already out on that one. Like, so uh, I guess my question is, like, how is this allowed to happen at this point? When, like, it's one thing when Conforto was struggling with the wrist injury and, you know, hitting a... You know, hitting 200, 300, 400 last year and was even worse than that over whatever look-back sample you wanted to use. He's the best offensive be, player on the team. He's going to be their all-star representative. He's going to be their all-star representative. He's going to be reduced to a four- or five-day-a-week player. He might be in the home run derby, like, in... Where was it this year? Florida? I think it's in he's going to be their all-star... He's going to be their all-star representative in a month, and Terry Collins hit for him in a big spot today. Yeah. Hit for him on June 11th. The guy the guy that is his best young player that's going to make the all-star game and looks like an emerging star. He hit for him. And tactically, it wasn't the worst decision. Terry Collins has... Would Terry Collins have fit for Jay Bruce there? No. Would Terry Collins have fit for Curtis Granderson there? No. He hit for Conforto. He still views Conforto worse than Bruce and Granderson. But... That, how is it allowed to? Because they can't fucking fire him. Because the ownership's protecting him. I'm not supposed to say that, right? It's been it, it, <laughs> it's it was been put out publicly it's by Mark Carrick. Reported, yes. It was, it was publicly reported by Mark Carrick that he's there by the virtue of his close relationship with ownership. I don't think it Collins was, is, you know, was not publicly aware of the fact that he's. It was publicly Tetman two and a half years ago in a book that Sandy Alderson authorized yeah. that that was also the case. Um, how does Terry Collins not see it, is my question. Is he just that blinded? I have asked everyone in the world I could possibly ask, and I usually can find this stuff out. Sometimes it's off the record, sometimes I can't say it. Did something happen with Conforto? Is there something between Conforto and Collins? And apparently Collins loves a kid. He just doesn't think he's that good. 
Well, this gets into sort of like the uh, his inability to evaluate his own players that you kind of got into with Cabrera's glove in the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, he wants the kid, he just doesn't think he's as good as Jay Bruce. Thinks Jay Bruce is a superstar. Which is the problem with trading for Jay Bruce, as we discussed when they traded for Jay Bruce. And have discussed when they didn't, when they picked up Jay Bruce's option, when they failed to trade Jay Bruce, when they started playing Jay Bruce over Conforto on April 5th. And again, when... Collins is in the room for these conversations a lot of the time. Yeah, I had a discussion on Twitter with, I think, Kurt. I think it's um, Kurt, yeah. Yeah, today, um, you know, we pin a lot of the ma- a lot of the managerial moves can be isolated to Terry Collins because we know he has, for instance, sole responsibility over the lineup. Yeah, but when we're t- starting to talk about like the decision of DFA Sean Gilmartin, that's like legitimately a six-person decision, seven-person decision. It's Sandy Alderson, it's Jeff Wilpon, it's JP Riccardi, it is Terry Collins. It is the AAA manager, whoever that is at a given time. Pedro and Lopez. Pedro Lopez this year, Wally Backman previous years, and the farm director would be yeah, Ian Levin's probably in there, too. Yeah. yeah, this is not strictly a Sandy Alderson decision. I mean, ultimately, when this kind of stuff goes bad, it does fall on the GM. Yes, but it's like Sandy Alderson is in his terminal team job. He is not being fired. He is not leaving to go to another team. Yeah. He may leave to go back to the baseball general office at some point. He may get the... I the, 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 he's just going to retire. He might get the kick upstairs to president and whatever. The Mets... The Mets are... The they Will haven't really are, done that, yeah. The Wilpons are still not in a position where they can fire uh, Sandy Alderson. Correct. That, this is not something that's going to be happening. It's not brought up. He's here as long as he wants to. Um, unless something incredibly weird happens. And I think everybody assumes that he's probably going to retire within the next few years. You know, there have certainly been rumors for the past couple of years, as you would, you know, it's 69 years old and had fairly serious cancer recently. So, but, you know, it's not like you can't say like, Sandy Alderson DFA'd Sean Gilmartin. I can say that Terry Collins pinch hit for Michael Conforto. There's nobody... The only other person that's even in the, 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 that decision-making discussion is Dickie Scott. He has no actual authority there. Whereas the authority over a roster DFA is probably ultimately Sandy Alderson's call, but there's a lot of input and a lot of discussion and Sandy Alderson may not even be making the move he personally would want to make. Um, but, you know, for the idea, and I know Kate Feldman wrote something about this on BP Mets within the last 10 days, but, you know, there were a lot of people scuffling at the idea that he was really going to play Bruce and Granderson over Conforto when Cespedes came back, and he fucking pinched it for Conforto. Like, why would you even risk your Michael Conforto's confidence in that situation to pinch it for him? The dude's crushed lefties this year. Yes. You know, I, 
And again, tech, you know, if it's Game 7 of the World Series and somehow you have Yoinis Cespedes on your bench and you're looking to tack on runs, this becomes a defensible decision. This is the, the Raul Ibanez for A-Rod. Right. But just, what the fuck? Like, that move just start. like, my response to that is just like, he really doesn't think Conforto's any good. He's on a hot streak, that's all it is. And he, you know, there was a quote after the game where he lumped Conforto and Flores together as young players who had earned a roster spot. Not earned being the three and four hitters in the lineup that had earned a roster spot. <laughs> you know. Badger's got to go. They're going to do it at the end of the year anyway. Yeah, I know. So the idea that they just, like, have to stick with them I, I just, you know, it, it turned out okay, but he absolutely blew the bullpen out in game one of the doubleheader yesterday, even after they pulled a five-run lead. Left Addison Reed in to pitch a second inning with a five-run lead. With the second and half of a doubleheader coming. I know they thrown like eight pitches in the two-thirds of an inning, so you could have brought him back for game two if need be. Sure, but by bringing him in for the second inning, you're not only risking him for the second game of the doubleheader, you're risking him for the Sunday game if he has a rough inning. Yeah. Because you're going to leave him in the whole way with a five-run lead. You're going to throw 30, 30 more pitches. If he does, you know, which reliever he trusts varies, you know. We make fun of the circle of trust, but the circle of trust is literally changing game by game. The only two people that have been in the circle of trust consistently are Blevins and Reed. The only two. Fernando some Salas seemed Salas to pop back in at some, some point this week. Seawald's in there sometimes, but not other times. Salas is in there sometimes, but other times. You know, Neil Ramirez and Josh Edgens seem to rotate through. There's, there's just no rhyme or reason. There's no logic. There's no... It's my gut, my gut feeling. You know, it, it would be one thing, you know... If Earl Weaver's telling me about his gut feeling, great. If, you know, Connie Mack's telling me about his gut feeling. We've established that Terry Collins can't evaluate players, and now we're going with the guy's gut feeling that can't evaluate players. Fucking great. I, I, I'm assuming what I, I don't have this. I don't know if this is true. My guess is a factor in the Ahmed Rosario non-call-up is they can't force Terry to play. Sure. And I don't think Terry would play him. Unless forced to. If you put Ahmed Rosario on a roster where he also has Estrubal Cabrera and Jose Reyes to play shortstop, how many days a week is Rosario playing right now? Probably more at, like, third than he is at short. <laughs> You can rectify that. You can DFA Reyes and DL Cabrera. Sure. And I think um, we talked about this, I think, in the last couple of days, that like, like the DFA for Reyes is going to come when they decide to make a move for Rosario. There's, there's... I'm going to tie in the Conforto pinch hit with the TJ Rivera send down. Sure. TJ Rivera finally gets the play, has a huge day, and gets optioned. 
You are telling your young players it does not matter how good they are. It does not matter how good they perform. When you when they get a chance, that you are going to take name players who are not any good anymore over them. I mean, he's basically been. But this is a very for over Matt Reynolds, which is even weirder. But this is an extreme example of that. Yeah. Matt Reynolds is down too now, by the way. Oh, is he got sent down for uh, Lugo? He's, th- he's down because they want to carry Neil Ramirez as the 13th pitcher. Yeah. And because they. Another guy you know, been in and out as a circle of trust. You know, Jose Reyes is Terry's Binky. And they went 4 and 2 this week. <laughs> uh, what is Jose. Jose Reyes's great clubhouse presence. Jose Reyes was considered a bad clubhouse guy before he beat the shit out of his wife. Yeah. He has a 550 OPS. We are 200... They have given Jose Reyes 225 plate appearances this season. That is a lot. More than Alejandro Diaz I got last year, I think. He has a 48 OPS plus. 48. Let's see what his WRC plus is, because I know there's people that really love that stat. It's going to be almost the fucking same. He has a 51 OPS plus. He is 49% worse offensively than a league average hitter. He is negative by all forms of warp. Everybody pretty much agrees he's a middling to bad defensive player at this point at all positions. He can run a little bit. He'd actually be, if they were willing to sit him down and never start him, he'd be a decent 25th man. That also it's probably actually... involves they don't carry 13 pitchers, though. Right. Which they seem pretty insistent on doing. I mean, I guess if you're carrying six starters, which it looks like they're going to do for a little bit. Somebody's heard. Yes, so. inevitably, as the 2017 <laughs> Mets roll on. There's two options here. One, somebody's going to get hurt, or they're finally going to get fed up with Harvey being awful. I know how Harvey had a five-inning, zero-run start. He magicked his way. Sometimes bad pitchers will give up lots of base runners, fail to strike anybody out, and still get through five innings clean. And for once, Terry didn't push him way too far. So he actually got the five and dived him. probably because he had, like, a gazillion off days mixed in there. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals are, like, the state organization that doesn't, you know, fret about anything, released Johnny Peralta, who's a better player than Jose Reyes, and also, to my knowledge, has not beat up his wife recently, and has been a better player than Jose Reyes for every year for the last four years, except maybe last year. They released him and fired a coach and said, if this keeps happening, you know, we're going to make even larger changes. You want to guess how far the Cardinals are out of the division how far the, versus how far the Mets are out of their division? I mean, the NL Central is higher fire. It's really like three and a half or something. Yes, the Cardinals are right now two and a half games out of the division. Right, that's yeah. The Mets, the Mets, who have made this incredible run that I that people were talking about. Wow, they're back in the division race. Wait, I actually what? Had, there were people tweeting that because they picked up like three games on the Nationals over the last yeah, the two Rangers, days. Rangers beat them up this weekend. Yeah, 
Yeah, they're still nine and a half out. Well, they got them in town this week, so they got that going for them. They can close the gap. I I mean, I just... I don't get it. I really don't, you know. Does ownership think Jay Bruce is a superstar? Because I'd be really fucking worried at that point that they're going to sign Jay Bruce to, like, five years and $100 million. <laughs> I mean, he's just... It's still... Whatever. It's a uh, slugging heavy 800 OPS, right? I So, in the interest of full it's disclosure... I haven't looked at it recently. I've watched three innings of Mets baseball this week for various reasons. Mostly I've been at the park the last two days, and I watched the first three innings of the Rangers game. I'm just like, why am I doing this to myself on Tuesday? And then Wednesday... How was I doing Wednesday? Sitting 258, 327, 529. It's with ter- terrible defense in right field. It's Jay Bruce. He's having basically the old Jay Bruce season. Yeah. Hey, there's a chance he makes the all-star team over Conforto just because, <laughs> you know, they're Jay stupid. Bruce, yeah. yeah. Jay Bruce has made all-star teams he didn't deserve in the past, including last year. I mean, he had a better first half last year than he did this year, I feel like, though. Better counting stats. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know why I get better counting stats? It's hitting me that Joey Votto. Oh, is it's it amazing. Scott, Scott Schlieber? It, it's amazing how Jay Bruce went from being one of the National League's best RBI men to not being one of the best National RBI men in the National League when he went from eight years hitting behind Joey Votto to not hitting behind Joey Votto. Strange how that works. I'm trying to remember what else you were mad about online this week. So let's talk about the Sean Gilmartin DFA. Sure, it's whatever. It's Sean Gilmartin. It's Sean Gilmartin. Um, I suppose, you know, this is a little delicate, but there were certainly... Um, Sean Gilmartin's... Are they married yet? I think it's his Fiance wife. Now, wife. Yes. Um, is a very outspoken political analyst on CNN who is a Donald Trump conservative. Um, And Gil Martin has expressed some of those opinions himself. And it has certainly been intimated that having extreme conservative politic and kind of making it known, you know, there was certainly the intimation that that was involved in the Daniel Murphy decision as well. Right. But, I mean, major league locker rooms skew that direction anyway. Yeah, but most of them just shut the fuck up about it. Sure. Most of them, I don't know how much they actually care. Um, anyway, and there's, you know, the Wilpons are New York real estate men, so there might be stuff there with Trump that's a little different than most teams. Fair enough. So, the idea, you know, it. Should Sean Gilmartin still have been on the 40-man, he could come or go. The idea that they DFH Sean Gilmartin's to have Eric Goodell makes no fucking sense. I haven't done no. an Eric Goodell check recently. Are you doing an Eric Goodell check? So an Eric Goodell check. And what's the Sean Gilmartin check? Eric Goodell. He got his ERA it's under 10. Vegas. Yeah, it's down to 6.75. So he's been pitching well lately, then. Don't quite think we can go that far. But I mean, it was like well over ten a couple of weeks ago. So that's, that's yeah. 
Let's not overstate it too. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, he's been used. He's like the sixth inning guy in Las Vegas. He's giving up. You know, it's Arcadel. Um, it's Arcadel. Um, let's see what Sean Gilmartin is doing. But Sean Gilmartin at least has some utility. He's left-handed. He's had major league success at times. He can give you multiple innings. Uh, he can give you multiple innings. You know, he also had a 70 RA in Las Vegas. Um, over a similar number of innings, even. Eric Adele but, has a 2.70 RA in the last month. I have no okay. idea if that's indicative of anything whatsoever, but that might be part of the reason. I'm guessing Sean Gilmartin's is probably terrible. Um, last 28 days, Sean Gilmartin's ERA is 7-5. So there you go. So that might be... That's and like, probably, like, like it's for some reason, so you I'm buy sure it's pretty bad decisions. I'm sure, the, I'm sure when they called Pedro Lopez, Pedro Lopez said Arcadell's pitching better than Sean Gilmartin. Let's sure. keep Arcadell. Yeah. That's probably what happened here. But, you know, if, if you just look at the whole picture... Sean Gilmartin has a little bit of utility at Eric Adele has not. You know, if you need an emergency starter, Sean Gilmartin's there. The Vegas rotation's more of a disaster than the Vegas pen. Although they did send down Tyler Pill to reinforce the Vegas rotation. So I guess Tyler Pill took Adele's rotation spot. So I guess it was a clean swap. Um, you know, Tyler Pill would have been a reasonable DFA too, but he pitched, I guess, well enough in the majors that He's probably the next guy up again. That's not yeah. great. No, good for him. He got, like, three weeks yeah, of major league him. per diem, and yeah, now he's getting 40-man money. Yeah, now he's getting the minor league split instead of getting a pre-free agent. Was he a free agent this past year? He was. So he yeah. may have already had, yeah, so uh, he may 12, have had 14, a... 14, 15, 16. Yeah, yeah, he was. So he may have already had a higher uh, sure. AAA salary, so that may not be an issue. But he still gets 40-man benefits and all that crap. Being a member of the Players Association is actually positive. And Sean Gilmartin's um, still on a 40-man roster. He was immediately claimed by the Cardinals. <laughs> yeah, Eric Adele would have cleared waivers. Probably. I have Man. no... Not, probably. I don't know, like, every... People are just getting, like, randomly claimed, it feels like, this year, but... If you're, if you're deciding, you know, the lefty starter who's had some major league success and doesn't have a disaster MRI is probably get, has a much better chance of getting sure, claimed. the left-handed part certainly helps, yeah. Right. Um, again. You know, at it, worst, he's a useful yeah. guy to have in AAA. Right. Nerick Adele really isn't. Um, again, is this that big of a deal? No. But it's just weird back end of the 40 management. Realistically, both of these guys should have been churned a month ago. Sure. For other, for other teams' waiver guys, because other teams are waving guys better than this and have options left. Better than Neil Ramirez, even. Yeah, I mean, Neil they Ramirez... Picked, they just picked like up Daniel Bard, I saw. That'll be exciting in Vegas. Dan, I, he can't possibly be going to Vegas. Daniel's yeah. apparently trying to remake himself as a submariner now. Really? I mean, he yeah. has had, like, 70 lives at this point, it feels like. Well, yeah, because he was a really fucking good major league reliever one time, and it's not like bringing him in for $40,000 minor league salaries, you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, those guys... On a 0.01% chance you can get 50 major league innings out of them, you know. It's worth it. I mean, yeah, the Mets sort of did that with Jim Henderson before they overused him. Jim Henderson was a little better than that, I think. I think he had two Jim major Henderson, league seasons. 
Jim Henderson's problem was never so much he was awful as that he was hurt. Daniel Bard's lost the strike zone. Yeah. Uh, a little different, but... Sure. Yeah, same kind of theory, I guess. Do we have anything else to be mad about? I mean... You're it's mad about just, a lot of things this week. It's just that it's tiring. It's tiring to see Josh Hader get called up even though he's pitching like shit. And then be told that, uh, and then, you know, have them leak to the beats that they can't promote Ahmed Rosario because he's not hitting his walk rate percentage threshold yet. Because he's fucking hitting 340! This is like Kevin Kevin Goldstein used to rant about this on Up and In, the teams that set walk rate percentage thresholds that demanded their guys walk in the minor leagues, even when they were, the reason they weren't walking was because they were barreling everything earlier in the at-bats. I mean, if Alan Rosario comes up and hits 340, he's going to walk plenty because they're just going to stop throwing him strikes. <laughs> right, and he's not going to adjust to that in the PCL. He's still good for the level. That's just he's, especially given the hitting environment at the level, that you're not going to. He's not going to grow there. I mean, it's an eight. Something like I haven't looked recently, but I think it's like an 850 OPS away from Vegas. It's something like that. It's basically the same shape. It's a little less power. You know. So, you know, is it possible that they actually believe what they're saying? It's the Mets, so I don't think <laughs> so. So let's look at reasons Ahmed Rosario could still be down. Um, one is they're being super extra careful on the Super 2 deadline because of the cheapest motherfuckers on the planet. That's certainly possible. They could be waiting an extra week or two just to move from 99% to 100%. Okay. Um, they could be afraid Collins won't use them. That's, you know, I'd be afraid Collins wouldn't use them too if I didn't have Collins saying I'm going to use them. Which is funny because we talked about in the show how he was like trying to take him north in April. As the utility infielder. Right. As the sixth infielder. It's like when Dusty tried to take Lucas Giolito up north last year as like the sixth inning guy. Right. Which, in retrospect, might have been a much better <laughs> than sending him to Harrisburg, given what the double-A pitching coach did to him there. Um, they could be waiting for a home game to call him up for a gate. Because, as you said, they're the cheapest motherfuckers on the planet. <laughs> yeah, then, again, that would say that they're the cheapest motherfuckers on the planet. Um, they could be trying to give, you know, Cabrera and Reyes one last week or two. You know, maybe they're trying... And teams sometimes think this way. Maybe they're trying to get through Estrubal Cabrera bobblehead day before they bench Estrubal Cabrera. The Braves tried to get through Bartolo Colon bobblehead day before they benched Colon. They and couldn't they got, make it. He got hurt, so. Hurt, yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> hurt. Um, you know, could they be trying to make it through Estrubal Cabrera bobblehead day? This is like the type of weird, fucked up logic baseball front offices sometimes I mean, get they, into. As I recall, didn't they trade Marlon Bird on his free shirt Friday? <laughs> Yes, yes, but that's, like, not a huge promotion that they've been promoting everywhere. Yeah. Um, so there's the insidious you know, one. They could be trying to keep him down until April 20th next year to get another year back. Like, they did They did do that with Syndergaard. More or less. And they but went through with Syndergaard, there were some injury he was things. Not pitching he didn't, well. he, he was not pitching as well. Yeah. But their plan was to call Noah Syndergaard up in, what, what, 2014? Uh, yes. Post-Super 2, like everybody else. He was planned to be called up post-Super 2 in 2014, and they decided we're not contending, 
Cindergard's pitching just not well enough that we can sell it. I feel to like the he fan. had the, the it, weird collision at home plate right around the Super Two date too. And the rest so they of they got the a couple extra stands, weeks out of it, and then it was like, well, pitching just well enough. Yeah. Uh, but if you recall, it was a big thing when he did not get called up that September. Right. He was expecting a call up. The fan base was expecting a call up, and they kept him down. Um, and it's going to be hard to not call up Rosario for that long. But yeah. if there's anybody that can do it, the Mets can. I mean, they've shown they can. Uh, and that's where you get, you know, doesn't this feel an awful like lot like Chris Bryant needs to work on his defense? It does, sure. But I mean, right. like, we, we've said this before. They literally can't say we're holding him down until we're, we're sure he's not super two. Or for any service. They can't. Yeah. They need to come up with a baseball reason. Correct. It doesn't have to be a good one. It doesn't right. have to be it's a like, real Look, he's made some errors and the walk rate's not great. It's. Yeah. They, you, Chris, Bryant, Chris Bryant needs to work on his defense. Chris Bryant's like one of the best defenders in baseball at like multiple positions. Right. I guess but that extra month the reps helped, yeah. It wasn't even a month. It was 13 days. 13, yeah, you know. Uh, you know. You know, this has been... It was ridiculous that they didn't call him up in April. It's been increasingly more... It's just getting more and more ridiculous. Now we're at the point where people are outright... You know, people that are not Mets followers are calling it ridiculous. National baseball writers are calling the Mets out on it. We're getting there. Yeah. The local media somehow is still compliant. Which, draw your own conclusions on that. We've certainly discussed the reasons for that in the past. Um, but, you know, this is, you know... And hey, I you know there's people on Mets Twitter that will tell you that Ahmed Rosario's not ready yet. Mm. I don't think they're hanging out in Las Vegas, so I don't know where they're getting that from. But yeah, everybody I've talked to sure seems to think Ahmed Rosario's ready. I don't, you know. When a guy is hitting 340 at this point in the season, the presumption is generally that he's due for a promotion, I think. Sure. Whatever minor league level you're at. Like, this is literally the TJ Rivera comment from last year's annual. If you hit 350, you will get promoted. I mean, that's like a cool fight. thing. It's like a cool thing about baseball. Like, TJ Rivera was a guy they were not giving playing time to, but he kept getting promoted because he kept hitting 350. I mean, this happened uh, to Eric Campbell, too, Josh Satin. Right. And it's certainly more true for Prospect than it is for TJ Rivera. Yeah, you know, Patrick Mazeka's hitting 320 or whatever in advanced A. He's probably going to spend the second half of the year in double A. Right. That's the thing that's going now, to happen. You, you just saw Francisco Mejia. Yes. This is kind of a sag to Prospect talk. Sure. But, you know, Francisco Mejia's hitting 350 in double A. It's 365 now <laughs> after today. They update it after every at-bat on the scoreboard. Actually, it might be higher because he got a hit in his last at bat too. You know, he hit 350 in the first half last year and got promoted too. Yes, he might be their major league catcher in September at this he, rate. So it's always this is when live looks are instructive on a certain level, where like I know Francisco Mejia is a very good prospect. I've heard people tell me he's a very good prospect. I've had people on staff describe him to me as a player i've read their reports people that we have had plenty of francisco mejia looks i'm pretty sure there's eyewitness reports in the archive 
we ranked him something like 30 or 35 on the 101 last year. Yeah. So he was in the 30s. Yeah. So that's a very, he was the, I think he was the highest ranked catcher. I think he was a couple spots ahead of Alfaro. Right. So he's he's the best catching prospect in baseball. And that was something that we had discussed. We had discussed Mejia versus Alfaro specifically. Sure. At great length, actually. So this is a two-game look. And I don't want to lie. And he only caught for one of the mediation on Saturday. It's like you see it live and you're just like, oh, this is one of the best prospects in baseball. But he's also hitting 365 as a double-A, you know... Those are, and this is actually my 10-pack this week about McGrindolfo. Um, we say don't scout the stat line. Yeah. Extreme stat lines are still, you know, McGrindolfo has an 11-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio as a low-A repeater. There's no way to put a shine on that. Yeah. Conversely, if you're a real skilled catcher and a real skilled prospect, your first crack at the double-A level at 21, and you're hitting 365, you're a monster prospect. Like, I mean, you literally don't need me to tell you that Francisco Mejia is a good prospect, but I'm here to tell you, Francisco Mejia is a very good prospect. When Francisco Mejia pops up in our top 10 in the midseason, don't be surprised, is what Jeff is trying to tell you. It's legitimately like 7-hit, 5-power as a catcher. Right. That's like Buster Posey. I don't think he's as good a defender as Buster Posey is, but... You know, this is a similar catching, you know, Travis Darnell was projected kind of roughly similarly. Probably 6-6, six and six, but I could go back and look at our old Travis Darnell. And Travis Darnell was considered a top 25 prospect for a while. Yep. Top 10 prospect by some people. Uh, and it's um, funny because it's not like a catcher. You look at him, he's short. He doesn't have a huge frame. He's got a big butt. And it's just a very simple swing, and it's premium bat speed. And he can track breaking balls. He can hit breaking balls hard. He hit one onto the roof. Have you been to the New Hampshire Stadium ever? I don't think you have. No, I have not. So it's got a short left field porch, and it's deep in right center. He, I mean, this was 93 down the deck from a lefty with 20 command, but it was still, you know, major league velocity. Uh, he turned on it and put it on. So in the right center field bleachers, there's like a bar and grill. That's like your standard bleacher oh. size, but it's a bar and grill. He hit it onto the awning behind the bar and grill. Yeah. Maybe 410, 420, if I had to guess. Like, easy. That's, yeah. Hey, he hustled and again, a couple hustle doubles on just, like, balls, like, medium liners into the gap as a catcher. He's a 40 runner. He beat out an infield single. Switch hitter. And again. Swing looks the same it, from both sides. This is how you Jeff is telling you how you hit three sixty and double A as a yes. twenty one year old prospect. Not you know, this is all once in a while you get a stat line that doesn't fit. And that's more true, especially at the lower levels. Daniel Burrito's batting average has collapsed, for example. Yeah. Um And again, this so is the difference between hitting three sixty and A ball and three sixty and double A too. Right. This you know, is double where, A like, the numbers start to matter. Like if right. Desmond Lindsay is hitting whatever it is, 190, 330, 330 in two years in double-A, I won't be able to hand-wave it like I can now. Correct. You know, if Mickey Moniak continues to put up this offensive performance higher on the chart, it becomes a much bigger problem than it is now. Correct. Now people are going to, you know, 
he's still a top 50 candidate for us. I know other people had him a lot higher. Whereas if we took this offensive performance of his, it, I'm, I'm making, I feel like had he had a big like week, I would have heard about it. So um, he hasn't. Yeah. He's hitting 266, 325, 397. Yeah, he's back to Just, what he was before his last big week. Yeah, see, I don't big week, and then he grinded out a bunch of times. Um, actually, I I did get a Lakewood game in this week, which is where I saw McRudolfo again, although I'd seen Canapolis earlier in the season. Um, and it appeared that, given his two home runs, Mr. Moniak has decided he wants to loft the ball now. That's probably not going to work out for him well in the long term. Um, but we'll see. So there's, there's this week in Nicky Boniak, which has also become a recurring feature, much to my dismay on this podcast. Well, I mean, that was always going to happen, given that, you know, hey, I live, you know, yeah, eight miles away from the stadium where the one yeah, walk is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was always going to happen. Um, Fortunately, we don't have any Twins affiliates in the area, so. Yeah. So, Gleyber Torres got promoted out of Trenton. That actually happened a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote about it, which also happened a couple of weeks ago, but did finally get published. Yes. Um, it, it got pushed back for various reasons that were mostly out of my control, although one of them wasn't. Um, you know, Clubart Torres, to me, is a top three prospect in baseball, a top four prospect in baseball. I think that's fairly uncontroversial at this point. Fairly, yes. You know, this is... It's a high-end shortstop prospect. I don't know, you know, he's probably not going to play shortstop in the major leagues because they have Didi Gregorius, and Didi Gregorius is a better shortstop than Gleyber Torres. Is he a shortstop for you? Because I get, I hear varying um, things, like in a vacuum. I, I wrote, I wrote this up. He's in the bucket that he may or may not have actually stuck there. Sure. Um, I don't know is the answer. Fair enough. We don't, we don't say that enough specifically about whether guys are going to stick at shortstop or not. The answer is very often I don't know, and instead we go hard one way or the other way. Major League shortstop is hard. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think the safe bet is probably no. Uh, but he's going to be an excellent second baseman or a good third baseman, I think. Sure. Um, I, I'm, you know, really impressed with the hit tool, and I think the power that everybody projected is actually coming. I mean, he's still only 20? 21? 21. 21. In AAA. Yes. He's apparently done nothing since getting bright. Excuse me, he's 20. He's playing this entire I season. I thought he was 20, 20 yeah. Um, well, no, his AAA numbers are actually up now, too. Um, you know, he hit 273, 367, 496 at AA, and over 17 games at AAA is 267, 389, 400. Um, you know, I, I, I ultimately wrote him up as a six-hit, six-power guy. I'm not convinced that he won't ultimately be higher than that. Yeah, we know. Um, but I think those are the safe, you know. The safe numbers, but it, it, this is the type of profile that sometimes, you know, busts out in weird, unexpected ways. Um, there's no fucking way he's 6-1. Like, there's just no fucking way. Because, as, as we all know, Cubs' heights and weights are <laughs> definitely... They have not updated yes, his height uh... and weight 
Yeah. We've learned that. But the hard he's way. listed at six he's listed at six one one seventy five. If I was eyeballing it, I'd guess probably five eleven two hundred. Sure. Sounds about right. because uh, he's kinda of stocky too. He's not you know, he's not a skinny dude. Uh, which again is a reason that I think it can project the power. Dude's just got incredible wrists. That's really what it comes down to. He's got incredible wrists and hand eye. And I really think he's gonna hit. Who else have you um, seen recently that you want to talk about? Well, I saw Fetty. I saw Fetty's last start, and I don't think we ever actually talked about it. Um, I mean, I basically wrote him up as this is a present major league number four starter, and I don't know why he's in Double A. And, and now the, he's in uh, Nationals. Even, which is even... Joe Ross keeps getting right. So the thing I don't get is, shouldn't Fetty be the guy that they drop into the rotation and Joe Ross be in the bullpen? Because Joe Ross has more of a bullpen profile than Fetty. Yeah, you know, fastball slider guy that... Fetty's a three-pitch guy. And Fetty's a legit... He's got three major league pitches. You know, it's not overwhelming, which, again, is a reason that... Why are you putting him in the bullpen? I don't think it's going to massively play up there. Um, it's kind of a weird, he like needs innings too, because he's like weirdly like over, he's got the weird overaged, but inexperienced yeah, Tommy thing. Don, yeah, Tommy Don. Um, it, it's just, it's a weird decision. I forgot to put him in the bullpen. What the hell is he still doing in double A? There's also that. You know, it's not like they're major league bullpen. You just call him up and put him in the major league bullpen if you really wanted to. Right, and, you know, that also leaves you all the evaluative decision. Like, if your major league guys like him more than Joe Ross, you can just make that flip in the majors. The whole thing just, I don't know, it was weird. Um, I've seen Justice Sheffield again several more times. He's a guy that I'm, like, kind of actively avoiding seeing at this point because I need to see him... Um, later in the season, I think. I think it would be good to not see him for six weeks and then see him again and see what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Because I think you can see more of a change that way. Um, speaking of which, I did recently done that with Adonis Medina, um, who has ticked up the fastball a couple notches and was th- had er- was he throwing both the slide and a curve for you last year? I saw him for 13 pitches, Jarrett. Um, the slider, okay. from what I... He was fastball curved, supposedly, and he added the slider late. Okay, so he added the slider. When I saw him in April, he was both slider and curve, and he junked the curve. Yeah. And the slider's a much better pitch. Um, change is a little firm still. Sure. It's an A-ball, it's an A-ball change up. You know, he's a real prospect, um, I saw one. Doming- I saw the first Domingo Acevedo start in Triple A. Really need to see him again before I write anything. I think he's a fastball slider, like like game reliever. In the end, um, I did see Domingo Herman, who actually just got called up, and I'm not really sure why he got called up, other than that he's on the forty. I mean, he's Domingo Herman. Other than that, you know, nobody too exciting. Um, 
Have you seen anybody other than Francisco Mejia? You had Bobby Bradley thoughts. It's fun. Like, I don't know... If it's just a weird swing... Because he's like, he like drops his hands into it and lows at his back hip. And then just... Uppercuts. And you can find, go watch video of it on YouTube. It's just like the kind of thing where you think it'll get exploited. And he trouble like anything soft he has issues with. But good lord, he, like there's some barrel control there. If you throw him a fastball anywhere around the zone, he can hit it a long way. Like he really could have had four home runs. He just missed one to dead center today. And then one last night in the game he hit two. He just happened to hit it the deepest part of the park, oppo. Now... We did have Bobby Bradley in consideration for the 101. He did. He was not one of the last cuts, but he was at least the guy we talked about for it last year. Yeah, it's just tough. His would, first base profile, he's not a great first baseman. Would you, would you, I mean, are you higher or lower on him than, like, Fringe <laughs> just off the 101 guy after seeing him for a couple of looks? He's the kind of guy I would put at 101, maybe. Like, he's that kind of guy. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, the Tyler Wade thing was kind of a joke. We ranked Tyler Wade, but we said him way higher than 101. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we really said him. In retrospect, like, we really said him. Um, and if he's still eligible this year, we might. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, you kind of usually stick one. There's usually one on one is one on one because we want to make a point or it's somebody that we like that you know we're just trying to fit on the list. Um, I can see it being like Dustin May this year or two or something like that. Sure, you know Joey Wentz. Uh, yeah, because like it's a spot. It's, I feel like it's. At least in my mind, like, the spot for the guy you like more than anyone else. Like, the guy at that, like, 100 to 150 level. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know... We perhaps were... Um, I don't know, we were reportedly the least consensus uh, prospect yeah, list already. That. I like to bring that up on the show a lot. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, you know, we could have been even further out of consensus and ranked Tyler Wade like 60 or something like that. That doesn't actually mean uh, the needle at all. It's like all based on the top 15 guys, mostly. Yeah, we ranked Alex Reyes 1. We had Reyes 1 and we had Mancata 4, I think, was the reason we were so out of consensus, which makes no sense, but whatever. And do you know what the funny thing is? Yeah. My name was on that freaking list. I guarantee you I like Moncada better than anybody else that wrote a list. Yeah, sure. You know, out of, you know, Eric or Keith. I mean, didn't B.A. legitimately or, have him at one? I think or they MLB, did. I don't, one of them did. I don't, I, don't, I don't know who was responsible for those lists, but, yeah. you know, I, you know, I... I love Moncada. I made a case that Moncada should have been... I think I actually made a case for him at two and not one, but... Um, you know, I, there were drafts of the list where he was lower than four, and I vehemently argued yeah, you that argued he did him up. I, I had him, like, at the back of the top ten at something. 
Right. And, yeah, and then we get things for Moncada being too low, quote, unquote. And there was no, fun- there was no functional difference. Like, we discussed Moncada versus Benintendi at great length. Yeah. When we did the Red Sox list initially. Apparently they're there platooning very, Benintendi now. There was very, very, very little difference between yeah. those two players. You could have flipped a coin. It was like a 55-45 call. Moncada was ahead on certain iterations of the Red Sox list, too. Everybody makes such a big deal out of those top couple prospects. And, like, it's 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 the whole it's the Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Matt yeah. Moore thing. You could have ranked them in any order. Yep. And obviously there's a very correct order now, but <laughs> yeah. there was not a very correct there order wasn't. then. You know, obviously, right now it's Trout, Harper, Moore, and it's probably going to be Trout, Harper, Moore forever. I mean, obviously, like Aaron Judge should have been top five coming into this year. You know, I argued for Aaron Judge to be higher than you he did. Was. Yes, to be fair, shit happens. You know, there were reasons that we ranked Aaron Judge there. They were perfectly valid, good reasons. It turned out to be not right. It turned out that Aaron Judge magically figured out how to recognize major league pitching. And I said this before, I forget what the format was. If you came to me and told me and had, had a report off Judge last year that had the top five pay, prospect in baseball, I wouldn't have hired you. Right. It's like the old, if you had written Jacob DeGrom up yes, as an ace, that's how it usually comes get up. laughed at. Yeah. yeah. I like, do you know what you're actually looking at? The Penguins are going to win the Stanley Cup on the most bullshit goal possible. Sounds about right. The, the puck bounced there's a minute 30 left in the game, in a 0-0 game. They dumped the puck in. It bounced off of the backboard. And basically, um, Patrick Hornquist ends up with the puck behind the goalie and bounces it off of Pecker in his back. Yeah. Off a of puck bounced off of the backboard. This is now going to be reviewed, I think, for goaltender interference, but I think it's going to hold up. Um, anyway, this is just been, this entire series has been like a great, and obviously it's hockey, not baseball, but Nashville for the majority of the series has vastly outplayed Pittsburgh, and they're still going to lose in six games because it's a seven-game series, and shit happens. Although there was one game where they got vastly outplayed. Yeah, there might actually have been interference on that. Um, anyway, back to baseball. Yeah, I mean, if, I, you know, I was not arguing for Aaron Judge to be the fifth best prospect in baseball. I was arguing that we should have him, like, 35 instead of 60. Right. Or whatever. Um I did not think Aaron Judge was going to start hitting 350. I'm still skeptical that that's a long-term sustainable sure. thing, but he may end up be he may just be Giancarlo Stanton again. Right. Just fine. That's a comp yeah. that people have made. Yeah. That was always his upside comp. That's a roll seven. It's a healthy yes. Giancarlo Stanton. You know, it's it's like Gary Sanchez. This was always Gary Sanchez's upside. And not the like, you know, it, this isn't like 99th percentile, it's like 95th percentile. Right, this is like, you know, Jorge Alfaro could put it together and do this too. Yeah, I made that. That was like basically his player comment in the book this year. All right, you know, Jorge Alfaro could be Gary, 
Jorge Alfaro could get called up on August 1st this year, suddenly figure out to hit and be the best catcher in baseball by this time next year. Yes. That is plausible. That, again, is a 95th percentile outcome, but that's what just happened with Gary Sanchez, and they are pretty similar prospects. So, um, Talk about the draft briefly, since we're an hour in. You have any idea what the Mets are doing? So, I don't know if I'm supposed to... Hang on. Take I've heard rumors. I've, yeah. I've heard them attached to 900 million players. I've heard them attached to players that have not been made public. Um, the players I have heard them attached to that have not been made public would be on pre-draft deals where they would get a significant savings. Yeah. So I have heard that that might happen. Yes. They are a team that is being rumored to do that. This is... This is something they have done in the past. Yeah. Them. And something that's sort of in my DMs right now, but I'll have to let it go. You can talk about it off air. Um, for as far as who they've been like publicly linked to, it's exactly the guys you'd expect. Yeah, it's arms they can cut a deal with and college bats. Yeah. So. Uh, Logan Wormuth, the uh, North Carolina shortstop, not a popular one. Yes. Who I'm basically describing as, what if I told you Gavin Giacchini went to college? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, the uh, Central Florida pitcher, I believe they've been attached. The guy that throws really hard that everybody thinks is going to be in the bullpen. Nate Pearson? So the screw in yes. his elbow? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Prado, the high school first baseman. Because, of course. Because, of course. Various uh, college pitchers. Logan Canning's come up. Uh, I think our good friend Keith Law just mocked them to the LSU guy, Lang. Yeah. There was, there's been a lot of, they like this person, but he might not be there. Or they like this person, but they might get them in the second round. they're picking or... 20th, and it's a shallow draft class, and who the heck knows. Um, Jake Berger is a name that I've heard. Yeah, sure. Um, Jaron Kendall, if he falls down, is a name that's popped up. He probably won't. Probably won't. Uh, Keston Tierra, if he falls down. Sure. Somebody he seems like the total, he totally seems like a Mets pick just because he can hit. He's got a good command of the strike zone. They don't know what position he's going to play, and he already needs surgery. <laughs> that doesn't sound very, like very, very mess, yeah. And he's a California um, guy, so... Uh, Alex Fado. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like Fado, but who knows? But this is the group of yeah, whatever. Yeah. They'll pick somebody, and we'll talk about it next week. Yeah, they have. Don't be surprised if they cut a deal on the pitcher. Sure. This is something that I think we both heard. Yeah. And I've heard a number of different names involved in that too. I haven't heard a specific. Well, actually, that's not true either. I have heard a specific name, but. Yeah, we should discuss um, this off air. So I said we'll take a break. Yes. And when we come back, we'll talk to our good friend of WFAA Baseball Prospectus and Fan Rag Sports, Kate Morrison. We'll at least make it three out of four weeks here on For All You Kids Out There, talking about a team 
the Mets recently faced. And since they happen to face the Rangers this week, and neither of us have any interest in talking about the Atlanta Braves other than to say they're bad, maybe not worse than the Mets, only time will tell, we will bring on our good friend from Baseball Prospectus, WFAA, and the official Astros beat at FanRag Sports, Kate Morrison. Welcome back to the show. Hi. You're quickly becoming like the J.P. Morosi of uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Houston Astros. I mean, their story. They are, and sure. so they're worth writing about because they are so far the only one of the tanking teams to actually, like, be successful in any, like, real form like like you would say like maybe maybe early A's were like your prototypical kind of tankers but they didn't really have the love like they didn't have the strategy wasn't codified then and since the Astros like literally campaigned on the fact that they were tanking it's interesting that unlike certain other teams out there they are actually able to uh, live up to it first place in the NL Central the Milwaukee Brewers right now. Well, I I mean, they're not good. I have but... as much vested interest in the Brewers as anybody, but I, a lot of their success is coming at the is coming at the hands of or coming at through the fact I have not had any of this tea that I just brewed. Give me a second. Um, it's coming through the fact that the Chicago Cubs have been um, ridiculously mediocre. Because if if the Cubs are anywhere near what they did last year, like I, I like normal levels of what they did last year, they're in first, no question. But the Brewers have been able to capitalize on the the kind of more abundancy of that division, which is, I mean, so that's something for them. I, I don't know how long that's going to continue, especially with some of their better hitters out, but. You know, they've got young talent, and they're willing to go for it, which is more than some other teams can say. I do want to talk about the Brewers' young talent in a minute because you've seen several of them since they got tra- <laughs> before they got traded to the Brewers. Yes. But it, it's worth talking about the Cubs, and the Cubs are coming in to play the Mets this week. The Cubs, you know, were a little bit over a third of the season through, and the Cubs are 31-31. and 31. They've got a plus-two run differential, so it's not like they're outplaying they're like getting like hideously unlucky in terms of like Pythagorean theorem or anything. Mm-hmm. They just haven't played very good bait. They've been playing like a 500 team. A bunch of their dudes haven't hit. Um, their defense, which was a strength last year, has turned into a major weakness this year as they've tried to jam all kinds of guys into the outfield. I'm sorry, Cubs Twitter, Kyle Schwarber sucks out there. Sorry. I mean, and that's that's the thing about um, if you're going to be an NL team, you have to strategize like an NL team. And Schwarber doesn't belong on an NL team. You know, he is baseball Twitter's large adult son, but he does not belong on an NL team. That man is a GH. Well, he's a uh, first baseman or a GH. I thought he's Cubs first Twitter baseman. was like saying they should send him down to AAA. They've turned very quickly it's, from my understanding. <laughs> yes, but only because he's hitting like 170, yeah. not because he can't play left field. I mean, which was true um, before he brought the, his name. The Cubs are almost a, a kind of perfect illustration of one of the, the most bandied about, argued about theories 
in kind of this sabermetric era, which is how much does defense actually matter? How much can defense actually hurt you if you have offense? Now, the Cubs don't exactly have offense right now either. A lot of their guys, you know, as you mentioned, Schwarber is, you know, hitting worse than Rugnet Odor, which is saying something. But, um, you know, how much of that is because you have a bunch of guys who are being asked to play out of position? But there's also, there's also, like, it cascades when you've got a pitcher like Kyle Hendricks, who's, like, theoretically top-of-the-rotation guy for them, but, you know, he's an 87-mile-an-hour fly ball pitcher, which makes him very defense-dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake Arrieta's taking a bunch of steps backwards. It, it's just it's a weird kind of thing, like... I think the casual assumption was that the Cubs had to be good because they had too much talent, but we're like getting to the point in the season where it just looks like it might be a weirdly constructed team and enough players may have taken steps back. And not, not even, not even um, Joe Madden can save you. Right. Like I think there was also a prevailing opinion in baseball Twitter, that Jason Hayward couldn't possibly be this bad of a hitter, and it sort of just looks like Jason Hayward's this bad of a hitter now. There's a certain amount of hubris, too, that just said, eh, we're coming off a World Series win, let's just roll with Mike Montgomery as our fifth starter. But Mike Montgomery's actually been the best starter. I know. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't actually been starting, he's been working in long relief, but right. he's been better than any of their starters. Like, their best starting pitcher this year has been Eddie Butler. Eddie Butler? Like, and I know that's mostly because he's made a short run of starts and gotten lucky, and the real best starting pitcher is still John Lester. But, like, you know, the, the assumption that John Lackey would just keep going, you know, John Lackey's in his late 30s. Things happen. Yeah, Jake, I mean, baseball players fall apart very Jake, quickly. Jake is a weird profile. Jake Arrieta was also terrible in the second half last year, which was hidden because, you know, the Cubs had a 90,000-game lead. But it's, it's like, you know, it's not totally out of line that they were, like, there's a bunch of down performances, you know. But, like, you know, Javier Baez has a slugging heavy 758 OPS. I mean, that's Javier Baez. We've had this that's conversation Javier Baez. before. Yeah, you can't really, yeah, that's that's just going to be, that's the nature of the beast when it comes to Javier Baez. Still no, hasn't posted a season better than Wilmer Flores offensively. Wilson Contreras has had, you know, like Wilson Contreras and Albert Almora have both been slightly above 700 OPS players, and there was certainly a hope that they'd be better than that, but that's pretty, like, in line with, like, their preseason Dakota projections. I was told once upon a time that Albert Almora was, like, a slam-dunk seven-center fielder, too, and you couldn't possibly write a prospect report that suggested that might not be the case. He's good out there. He's fine. He's not, you know, Lewis Brenton, but... (laughs) He's also given way essentially to Ian Happ out there, and now they're playing, you know, Ian Happ and Kyle Schwarber next to each other in the outfield, which yes, yeah, that's um, a that's a decision that they have made. You know, Ben Zobrist is Older, starting yeah. his you know his bat speed, which again is something that happens. And the backside of the Ben Zobrist contract is probably going to look bad, like the backside of the Johnny Peralta contract looked bad, just. For someone who just got released. But they paid Ben Zobrist all that money because they expected him to be really good in 2016 and hope it would win the World Series, and it did. So, so yeah, you can't... I mean, when it comes down to it, you can't say that the Cubs have failed. Like, it, in some ways, this year was going to happen. It might not have happened this year, but this kind of 
of come down was going to happen because if you optimize your team for one year, which is I don't I don't know if that's what they were consciously doing or if that was like the main brunt of their uh their strategy, but that is what ended up happening was they optimized their team for one year and it worked. They went out, they got that flag, they got that ring, they made it happen, which you can't, you know, that's that's the thing you can't really take away from them not that you should. They, you know, they went out and earned that. But this year is the price of optimizing optimizing for one thing. And it's uh, something I actually discussed in my most recent piece about the Astros where I talked about, are they set up for the future? Because they're clearly the best team in baseball right now. They have this giant lead on the division, which is good because they've started getting hurt. But they, you know, you have to look towards the future and see how long that window is and see how long you have these guys signed and see what ages they are and what does your farm look like. If you can make it to that level without completely draining your farm – then you give yourself a much higher chance of success over a longer period of time. I do think, and, mm-hmm. I do think too, in this era, it's a little bit harder to, you know, open a window the same way the, you know, the Yankees of the nineties and two thousands did where you can just be a year in and year out playoff team just because yeah. the best players aren't hitting free agency. So you have to, and look, the Cubs did a great job drafting and developing you know, the entire core of that, Oh yeah, series team was well drafting, was developing, and, cheap, and but well drafting, developing, and trading because yep. um, they did trade for a couple of those guys. But there's also an outcome here where you know the Terry Francona in the in Game Seven of the World Series doesn't have to bring Michael Martinez in as a fifth infielder to play a five infielder stack, and he has Coco Crisp in the game, and Coco Crisp walks off Michael Montgomery at the end of the World Series, you know. And then, then what are we talking about? They didn't win. Can you imagine how I, insufferable might be the wrong word, but insufferable everything would be if they had blown that game and then this happened? Like, I, I yeah. think it became okay because they won the World Series, but, you know, there were certainly, they could have lost that game seven. You know, that was not, that was a, that was, you know, one of the all-time great game sevens, which inherently means it was close and they could have lost. Um, and I, I don't know, it's just, it's weird, and, like, you, you kind of think about how, you know, Theo Epstein is, and we've discussed this on the podcast before, I think generally considered one of the best executives of all time now, and I think he deserves to be considered that, but there's also, you know, his teams have won a lot of close series and won a lot of close game sevens, so, like, it's like... And, well, and but in some ways, skill. in some way, well, it's not all skill, but it's not all luck either. No, it's not. If you have a team that's set up to take advantage of that stuff, you're able to do more with what luck you're given. And you know, yeah, they they could have lost, and it could have all been for naught, but they didn't. And so you're left with a kind of what now? Now, if they had lost, we would be talking about how. They set themselves up for a one year and it didn't work out and how that's a bad strategy and it's ill-advised and, you know, and I'm sure we would still be talking about how cursed they are and stuff like that because they they tried to, you know... They, they traded Gleyber what, Torres the, for the, a rental. They traded Gleyber Torres, who's either going to be 
the, That's starting, what I'm talking for, about. starting for the Yankees, who are probably the second or third best team in the AL, or is going to be one of our top five midseason prospects. And they traded him for a rental reliever to yes, try and go in the World Series. And they did, although the rental reliever blew the save in Game <laughs> 7. But, you know, so it happens. I do wonder a lot of this isn't maybe hindsight, because they've been, like, I don't think coming into the year anyone thought they'd be anything other than, maybe if not a 100-plus win team, they're, you know, whatever, the plexiglass glass principle and whatnot, but, you know, a comfortable division winner in the 90s somewhere, you know, akin to what the Nationals are probably going to be this year. They became a more weirdly constructed team trading out Dexter Fowler for Kyle Schwarber, essentially. Yeah, that made made it... And I don't think that, you know, I didn't really consider much about the Cubs because they're not usually in my, you know, writing sphere before, you know, they started not being great. But, it, I mean, it's interesting. It's it's very interesting to sit here nearly at the midpoint of the season, you know, before the draft and everything and look at them as a, a farm system that has some talent but that isn't, you know, loaded and, and it's very far away too, for the most part. And it's yeah, and it's all very far away. And there's and the none impact, of the impact guy that might be here in a year and a half is Eloy Jimenez, who's another freaking quarter outfielder. Why they got to play Eloy Jimenez in center? You know, it's like they there's a logjam here. Obviously, I mean, do you think they just eventually deal Schwarber? I mean, they can't now. They turned they turned down all kinds of crazy shit for Schwarber over the last year, year and a half. Yeah. And now trading him at the Nadir... Like, if he starts hitting again like the Cubs thought he was going to hit, they almost can't trade him because you can't trade a hitter that's that good. And if he doesn't hit, they're, like, not going to want to trade him because they had the opportunity to trade him. They could trade him for Andrew Miller. Yeah. Yankees would have done that deal over the one they took. Oh, they would have done that deal in a hot second. Yeah. that's That that deal was reported to be on the table, and it was reported that the Cubs turned it down. Yeah. And At I'm some guess- point, you've just got to sleep in the bed that you've made, though. Right, but, I mean, you know, honestly, and nobody wants to talk about this, but if they're really that committed to Kyle Schwarber... The guy that should trade is Anthony Rizzo. Yeah. Because they could get an enormous return for Anthony Rizzo on the contract Anthony Rizzo's on. But you're not going to, you know, teams that are in the position that the Cubs are don't trade players like Anthony Rizzo. You just don't. Though it would make it would make a lot of sense because that would give them probably some, you know, higher, higher level farm guys to fill fill things back in it would give them a place to put Kyle Schwarber and then you could re you know reshift everything in the outfield to make everything make a little bit more sense and you know Rizzo gets to go off and play with whatever I don't know who do you think who who needs a first baseman or a I mean at the level of Anthony Rizzo you're going to have lots of teams willing to jettison their their, their short to medium term first base options so, yeah I mean that and that deals relatively friendly so it wouldn't price out a team like i don't know the rockies do weird shit or the mets or the mets put ian desmond back in the outfield and i don't think the mets have the pieces to get anthony rizzo yeah i mean we're we're, this is not gonna happen 27 year old superstars don't get traded by teams like the cubs this doesn't happen 
Um, but if it did, it would be the best dang thing that's happened to baseball in a while. Anthony Rizzo signed through 2021 for what amounts to about $12 million a year left. I mean, almost, and the last, the last two years were team out. options, too, just in case he like breaks his leg or something. Yeah. That was not, uh, yeah, that was one of those contracts where they signed him where he was, like, not actually very good yet, and they signed him forever. Yeah. So they, I mean, that's a player that they, this, they have traded for him, they drafted him and traded for him twice. This part of office. Yeah, so this is a player that they truly believed in. And they were right. I mean, he's one of the five best first basemen in baseball. It sure didn't look like that through the first couple of years no, of his MLB career. And he was not that highly... He was a good prospect. He was not a yeah. superstar great prospect. Yeah. He was a bottom of the top 100 type guy. Bottom, middle of the top 100 first base prospect. He was like comparable to like a Dominic Smith as a prospect. Um, I don't know how we ended up talking about the Cubs for 15 minutes. But Maybe. hey, that's our podcast. Um... So the Brewers, who are the other team in that division, called up Lewis Brinson and Josh Hader, who are two players that you are very familiar with. Tell us about... Uh, I'll do the horrible question. Tell us about <laughs> Lewis Brinson and Josh Hader. Well, I believe at one point in time I called Josh Hader a poor man's Chris Sale, and I stand by that. That's a comp um, that's been made fairly frequently, because they have very similar deliveries. They have very similar deliveries with similar arsenals. Um, very different I would, say he's, I would say at this point, very different hair. Haters is much better. Um, I would say at this point, you might you might begin to throw a ceiling on on hater of you know the middle class man's Chris Sale. Uh, there are a lot of people who didn't think he was going to stick as a starter simply because of the delivery. You know, it's the same thing as the the Chris Sale thing. He didn't. He wasn't supposed to be a starter. He wasn't supposed to have an arm by now. But as, as with Chris Sale, they did call him up as a reliever. As a reliever. But he started all the way through the minors. And despite the Colorado Springs-induced blips, the stuff's still there. They wouldn't call him up if he wasn't, you know, ready to be up, especially as a reliever. And if they, you know, since they find themselves actually in this division race, that they're not in a position to call guys up just for development. They're in a position to call guys up who they think will actually help them get ahead. And they clearly think that Hayter and Brinson now will do that. Uh, Brinson is the, the guy I'm much more familiar with. He was a Rangers prospect in the Jonathan Lucroy trade, uh, possessor of the world's longest legs. Um, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Uh, when he was first brought up to double a, he was skinnier than he is now. He's put on a little bit of, of muscle, a little bit of good weight, but you just watch him stand at home. And this was back when the writers were still wearing their, it was, he was there for one year when the writers were wearing their white, white pants, not their cream pants and a pair of white pants on a guy with legs that long. is just like, dude, you're all legs and like, and then there's arms. And that's that's it, and so it creates a very interesting strike zone. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he's a good center fielder. Unlike Nick, you really get the feel for what a good center fielder is when you watch Nick Williams and when you watch Lewis Brinson. Uh, Williams had the tendency to make you know these kind of brilliant diving catches and the rolling stops and the uh, the sprint center top ten plays, which are not actually the best indicator of 
a quality of an outfielder's defense because it usually means that they were out of position and have had to run further than they should. Brinson, on the other hand, you can kind of sometimes forget to watch him because he's really quiet out there, and that's good. He's really quiet. He gets himself in a good position. Sometimes he takes bad reads, but he do- when he does get a bad read and when he does make a mistake, he has the speed out there to make up for it. Uh, that speed doesn't really translate onto the bases, but he is, you know, he's a smart base runner. He doesn't try to do too much. We we actually, I, in Lehigh Valley last year, saw Nick Williams make one of those amazing diving plays, and I think Jeffrey and I were the only two people in the press box that noticed he broke three steps the wrong way first. Nick Williams, everybody. Love the kid. He cannot, he, I wouldn't say he can't field. He's, he's good in the corners. Yes. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine in left where they're going to play him. Yeah. Um, But yeah, Brinson, he's a, you know, I don't know how well he's going to hit right away. He's never hit particularly well when entering a level. He's part of that, you know, 2012 class of Gallo and, you know, Williams and then, you know, the guys who kind of got lumped into that class of Mazzara and... um, the 2012 Hickory team. Yeah, it's that 2012 Hickory team. When I when I say the 2012 class, I mean the 2012 Hickory team because that's that's when everybody in uh, the kind of Rangers universe discovered them. <laughs> well, everyone discovered them in 20. Um, I think they were the 2013 Hickory team. They were the 2012 draft class. I'm looking this up quickly. Yes, you're correct. The, the 2012 Hickory 20, team was Odor and Alfaro. The 20 it was the 2013 Hickory team. It was the 2012 Arizona Rangers game where Gallo team where Gallo hit like 17 homers in like 20 something games, um, 40 something games. I have that on accident, but you know it's it's been a little bit slower to the majors for all of those guys, other than Mazzara, who ended up kind of lapping everybody, but. They'll get there. The talent is still there. They're ne- the, none of these guys have the. They've all kind of overcome the giant question marks that a bunch of people put on them at the beginning. You know, are any of these three ever going to stop striking out? Are any of these three ever going to, you know, make enough contact? And and of of the three, uh, Brinson's the one probably with the least power, but he will give you pop from a center field position, which, you know, what's what's the going rate on center fielders right now, like pop wise, like what do you, what's your kind of average expectations for homers? Probably like 10. Yeah. Brinson will probably give you about 15. He might get up to 20 once in a while. Just to go through this 2013 Hickory team, because this is mm-hmm. an amazing team. It was a fun team. These oh are all, goodness. these are all guys that were regulars. The outfield was Nick Williams, Lewis Brinson, Omar Mazzara rotating through the three spots. Um, Joey Gallo was the regular third baseman. Jorge Alfaro was the regular catcher. Ryan Rua played middle infield. Ronald and he Guz- was the surprise of that right. team. He and was he's... not supposed to be good, and now he's, you know, so, a, a bench slash um, platoon major leaguer. Right. So that's right off the top. You've got five top 100 prospects, uh, three of which have now become established major leaguers and two of which are still very good prospects in the Philly system. Well, I mean, Brinson's not an established major, but her is in the major leagues. Um, Ronald Guzman, who's still a very good first base prospect in the Ranger system. Um, the pitching staff included CJ Edwards, um, who, uh, you know, 
has you know, a ring good. that probably weighs more than he does now. But is a very good setup man for the Cubs now. Um, Keone Kilo, who's a very good setup man for the Rangers. Alex Claudio, who's a very good middle reliever for the Rangers. He's not a middle reliever anymore. I think he got a save tonight. No, no, okay. he didn't get a save. They, they, but he has a couple of. He is basically their their pitcher of all trades right now. He will come in whenever you need, and he'll throw his changeup and he'll get outs very efficiently. Um, Cody Eji, who's an up and down reliever. Uh, Andrew Faulkner, who's an up and down reliever, and That's Connor Sadzak, who's still a fairly significant prospect. Um, and that's throws f- 99 in the eighth inning. That's like an absolutely ridiculous A-ball team. And there's probably one or two other guys that are going to make the majors off of that team, too, that I didn't even mention. I that- Yeah, I saw that team. Um, for, well, I saw that team for a series, and then like six of them were in the South Atlantic League All-Star game, too. <laughs> that was the year the All-Star game was at Lakewood. Do you want to tell your uh, home run derby? All-Star yeah, so they did. They yeah, did like an, they did like an impromptu home run derby after they did like a hitting challenge, like a team hitting challenge, and um, the main participants in the home run derby were Peter O'Brien, who was then a Yankees prospect, and Joey Gallo. Um, Joey Gallo, I believe, won the home run derby without making an out and hit the ball repeatedly, not just over the berm, not just over the sidewalk wasn't just hitting the billboards in deep right, but was hitting them over the billboards in deep right in Lakewood, which is probably, I don't know, 450 or 460 as a carry. Um, yeah, he's... That is that remains the most impressive BP I've ever seen a minor leaguer take, is Joey Gallo in the South Atlantic League home run derby, because it's essentially a BP. That's, that, that is... Joey Gallo does not have 80 raw power. Joey Gallo has 90 raw power. And, uh, oh, what the hell? Let's talk about Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo is, like, one of baseball's most interesting players this season. He really is. And not well, just because of his weird faces. <laughs> yeah, if you, haven't, if you haven't seen any of the Joey Gallo weird faces, do yourself a favor and find some Rangers Twitter people. Uh, the WFA beat writer Levi Weaver has tweeted a couple of them. Um, Joey Gallo has a rubber face and is aware of it. And sometimes purposely, it seems, sometimes very much not on purpose, makes the best faces in baseball. Like, you'll just sit there and be like, how does his face change that many times over the course of, like, two seconds? It's wonderful. Anytime you need to, like, cheer up about something, just go find the Joey Gallo faces. But he's... You know, Gallo has always been one of those very divisive guys. You have the people who said, well, the power will never play because he's never going to hit enough and he's going to strike out too much. And you have the people who said, well, he'll hit dingers, but... Are those dingers actually, you know, is he going to hit enough dingers to be valuable to a team? And, and Gallo yes, is kind of forcing us to reevaluate what we mean by, by value. You know, right now we have a kind of very codified sense of what value is. It's wins above replacement, whether it's B-Ref, whether it's fan, fan graphs, whether it's baseball prospectus. It's wins above replacement. The way that those wins are calculated is based off of kind of the standard player. 
Gallo's never going to be your standard player, and so it takes a little bit more of an imagination to fit him into a lineup. Yeah, he's never going to give you much on base. He's never going to give you much, you know, of of walks, or he's never going to give you much just in pure average. But he has a higher chance of creating runs than, you know, anytime he's at the plate, just because of the power. Yes. And so that's... that. Mm-hmm. He has 13 singles this year. It's June and 11th. 17, and 17 home runs. <laughs> See, that's, that's Joey Gallo, is that you're not... You can't really judge him on this, you know, oh, well, he's gonna... He's, he needs to hit... What What is he hitting right now, Jeff? 204, 304. 500, 520. <laughs> um, this, this is a player with 280 tools and... May have a twenty hit, or maybe like maybe maybe a thirty hit when we get down to probably twenty present, maybe thirty or forty future. I think I think he'll be better over the course of the season. He's already adjusting a little bit. Uh, the league decided when he when he first came up, the, or this year the, at the beginning of this year, they decided that they were just going to throw him fastballs and challenge him, and then collectively kind of decided, oh wait, no, we're just going to throw him breaking pitches. And he's been getting better at hitting those breaking pitches. It's when he makes that adjustment and starts pounding breaking pitches and pitchers have to make their own kind of independent decisions on how to approach him that you'll see the average come up. All I know so that I, may not Huh? I said, all I know is we're getting Miguel Sano, Aaron Judge, and Joey Gallo in the home run derby this year and it's gonna be great. Yeah. Well well my thing I was I've always been high on Gallo and I've always been high on Judge. Because my thing is Give me the absolute monster athletes that have some baseball skill, and I'm going to assume they're going to figure just enough of the rest of it out and be good. No, I did not assume that Aaron Aaron Judge is currently leading the league in all triple crown categories. I didn't think that was going to happen. I think Aaron Judge is going to hit 350. But but you could, you could have seen him. You could have seen him being like the good defensive version of Adam Dunn. Certainly, I think. Uh, even, you know, better, I can see Gallo being the good defensive version of Adam Dunn. Uh, it, Judge was a player that definitely had the potential to hit for average. Yeah. He had just taken forever to adjust the levels, and he was starting to get a little bit old. And But he's just, like, a unique player. Um, and baseball, and it's the same thing with Gallo. Baseball has a tough time evaluating unique players. Um, but, you know, monster athletes like that, I'm going to assume that they're going to figure it out. I'm not talking about, like, I filed for the 10-pack this week on, like, Micker Adolfo, who's got, like, a 7-60 walk-to-strikeout ratio as a low-A repeater. He's a monster athlete, too, but he doesn't have the baseball skill yet. <laughs> you actually filed on Micker Adolfo? You know, what the hell, I got to file on somebody. I, didn't want, I, I may still write a full article on Courtney Hawkins, and I'm definitely writing a full article on Adonis Medina. So it was like, who the hell do I file for for the 10-pack? And Micker Adolfo was just sitting there. <laughs> Fair enough. And Micker started to get some, you know, hype again. And I think it was a $1.6 million IFA, and he is interesting. Yeah, more than that, didn't he? I thought he got, like, four. No, nah, I think it was 1.6. Yeah. He actually he has a really interesting background, and there is some reason. He was, from the, he was from the U.S. Virgin Islands, and he moved to the Dominican, like, right before the IFA signing period, so he wasn't eligible for the draft. I mean, he'll say it's to, you know... Uh, because he had family there and to improve his baseball skill, but it's really because I wasn't eligible for the draft. Um, so, and the U.S. Virgin Islands doesn't have the greatest baseball development. So the fact that he's still really raw at twenty 
you know, maybe he's got a little bit more of an excuse than your standard, like, $1.4 million IFA. It's like Akil Morris is, like, one of the few major leaguers from there, so. Yeah, I think, like, Cal Pickering was yeah. from there. Um, it's not a very developed baseball co- country, but, you know, we just, we have a hard time evaluating different. Like, I know you saw uh, Francisco Mejia this week, and he's kind of a unique prospect, and, sure. you know, we've been talking about how do we evaluate him versus, say, like, Rafael Devers, who's also kind of a unique prospect, but then you get, like, Gleber Torres is, like, a very standard prospect. A Victor, very, Ro- very Victor Robles prospect. is that guy, too. Rosario, right. certainly. Yeah. You know, Gleber Torres, every year there's Gleber Torres. That's not a bad thing. You know, he's a hell of a prospect. He's one of the top three prospects in baseball, but it's a very standard skill set. Um, and it's tough to figure out guys that don't have a standard skill set because, you know, your initial inclination is to start hitting them for it. And yeah. sometimes that's well, wrong. Well, because it's sometimes it's wrong because the, you know, the scouting system and all of kind of scouting lore is based on the average. And you're doing above average and below average. And so when you have somebody who breaks the average, it makes them difficult to categorize in a, you know, particularly useful way. I do think, like, like 80, calling Joey Gallo 80 power almost... Like, breaks the scale? Well, I think it does an injustice because, like, it's the amount of damage he can do on contact. And Sano's this way, too. Like, people are freaking out over Sano's Babbitt. Well, when Miguel Sano hits the ball, he hits it very hard. Joey Gallo in the Mets series, and this might be the only thing we talked about in the Mets Ranger series, hit what looked like a short, medium pop yeah. up against the grab, and it went out. And it yeah. wasn't out by much, but it was also like a 6.9 second hang time, and like the ball just kept carrying, 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 carrying. And, eventually and you went can't out. even blame it on the jet stream because there's not one in that park anymore. No, I, it was all just this guy's got absolutely, you know, Gallo's raw power is, if there is anybody that matches it in baseball, it's Giancarlo Stan, and that's it. Like, that's... Uh, judge I, I might. Think Aaron judge I think now, Judge buddy. does. Maybe, maybe Judge. <laughs> maybe judge, judge. But I, don't, I never saw it. I saw Judge take a lot of batting practices, and I saw Judge take, hit a lot of balls, and while... I would consider him, he's more of a game power over a raw power guy. He's always been more of a game power guy. Well, but what one actually counts? I mean, and that's where we get into some philosophical discussions of scouting is which one actually counts. Um, And, you know, but Judge coming into this year was a 24-year-old player, and his delta was still anywhere between quadruple A and, and star, even though he was in the majors. Nobody... You know, there were genuine questions whether he'd be able to hit 200 against Major League Pitching, and now we're sitting here on June 11th, and he's leading the, leading the AL in batting average. Like, that's, you know, it just clicked for him at some point, and it did. That's, you know, I don't think... Gary Sanchez was the same way, although I think Gary Sanchez pretty much everybody believed in by this offseason. Um, is this where we go, like, the Yankees are just doing some tremendous job developing these young hitters that we're not... Can we talk about how bad, badly the uh, column about how the Mets, uh, how the Yankees youth movement was a failure after Game 1 has aged? Yeah, I mean, there, there were, you know, 
I I am obviously friends with some people, some Yankees writers and people on Yankees Twitter. And there were people that genuinely thought that Cashman had done a terrible job of drafting, evaluating, and developing young hitters. You know, there were people that there were people that thought that that both Judge and Sanchez were busts. Oh yeah, and not that long ago, like a calendar year ago. You know, we're not we're not that far out from the Yankees have no young talent, you know, and hell, it does look like Greg Bird actually might end up being, I don't know, it's way early called bust, but he's certainly not, probably not ready, and I also wouldn't be shocked if Lucas Duda is the Yankee at the trade deadline either, because that's... They're not going to make that trade. Well, I could see them making that trade. When's the last time there was a Mets-Yankees trade, let alone at the Armando, deadline? Armando Benitez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, the last trade of any significance. Sure. But that's a team that could use the Lucas Duda. The Astros could use use uh, Lucas Duda. We have talked about this before. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. Player development's weird. It's totally not linear. Like, sometimes you just, guys just figure it out, and that's it. And, there's, you know. And you don't always know why, either. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is it's a weird animal. I cannot tell you why Aaron Judge went from being unable to recognize major league pitching to hitting the ball harder than anybody else in the major leagues just over the course of one offseason cuz that dude looked lost last year. And you know, it's obvious, you know, it's we're not crowning the guy the best guy, the best player in the major leagues off of 250 at bats. But he's also shown a broad enough skill set and underlying skills that I'd be surprised if he wasn't at least very good for the next five or ten years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's weird. Player development's weird. That's why it's fun to cover, but we all end up looking like idiots sometimes. That's the game. If you don't, you know, if you don't mind ending up looking like an idiot every once in a while, you shouldn't be doing this. Jeff is being suspicious. All I know is Robert Gazelle has a 2.25 ERA over the last month. (laughs) Robert Gazelle's ERA got under five. It is. The amount of nasty nasty tweets I've gotten has went down recently. I don't think I've gotten a Gazelle tweet in like a solid three weeks. I don't know if that that mirrors your experience. Yeah, more or less. Um, I I haven't done a chat in a while, so. I'm doing one, but... Within the next two weeks, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, yeah, I haven't done one in a while either. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting. Um, I don't think we would give Gaselman a seventy OFP anymore, but I would still stick a six on him without so, much hesitation. I think what happened, and if I ever actually get a chat question about this, which I inevitably will. Because the fastballs kicked down a little bit from where it was at the end of last year, it's more like 92 to 95 instead of 94 to 96, and the slider hasn't looked quite as tight, it's more like 60 fastball, 55 slider, 55 curve. So it's a 6 It's like a 60-55, which I considered writing him last year before I kind of... 
Yeah. I mean, the only difference was he would have been like, I don't know, the 45th best prospect in baseball instead of the 17th. And there were other people that ranked him around there. So had we ranked him around there, nobody would have said anything. Yeah. But, again, there's, like, not that much of a difference between those guys. There isn't. It's like, you know, the difference between... And the funny thing is he's better than uh, Tyler Glass now or Lucas Giolito, who we ranked ahead of him. Right. You know, I got... I had somebody question because I said on the podcast that there was one pitcher ahead of Gesellman on our 101 that I would have taken over Gesellman on a prep list. Yeah. And it was, Ty- it was Tyler Glass now. Who's been optioned. And I feel very good about that right now. You know, Tyler Glass now put up, what, eight ERA and just got sent down? Yeah, pitchers, man. Yeah. That's so again, weird. Tyler Glass now was always a pitching prospect that, again, had a very high delta right up to the yep. point where he was in the majors, but it kind of looks like he just might not be very good. Um, and again, he's the type of guy, Rostov, that size. He's going to get a million chances, including years to develop himself in relief. Right. He'll As will Robert Selman. Yeah. He'll turn into, like, you know, Andrew Miller in 2020 or something, and no one will be surprised. Andrew, Andrew Miller is a totally different... Has anybody, like, paid attention to what Andrew Miller's been doing this year? He's good. better somehow. Yeah. He has yeah. an ERA. He has allowed one earned run in 30 innings. A 44-5 to five strikeout to walk ratio. He is striking out 13.3 and walking 1.5 and allowing four hits per nine. How long would Andrew Miller have to continue doing this to, like, be a Hall of Fame candidate? Like, 10 years? Um, five and a ring. I feel I like it's more than that. Yeah, because, the like, reliever the re- standards are weird, though. It's like, it, based on career value, and he's not racking up any counting stats. There's a lot all. of, like, na- there's been a lot of narratives. Like, uh, Raleigh Fingers was a narrative candidate, so is Sutter. And Andrew Miller could be a narrative candidate. Sure. Because there is some possibility that Andrew Miller ends up being, like, the, I guess, Bruce Sutter of this... Was Sutter, like, the first closer-closer? Yeah. I think um, that, like, Andrew Miller ends up leading some revolution in relief, like, ten years down the road that we don't see coming right now. I think you gotta... It's tough to find, like, the guys that can handle that, though. There's probably more than... Andrew Miller. Think, it's... but... I mean, and I've talked about this before. I I can't remember if I've actually written about this, but I know I've talked about it before in that you have to absolutely get buy-in from the player. There are a lot of guys who only really think of themselves in these certain roles. And that mental training can affect how they perform. You know, you look at the kind of anecdotes of closers being like, oh, well, I just, you know, you look at how bad Joe Nathan was anytime you tried to put him in anywhere other than the ninth. But... You know, it really takes... So either you're going to have to start doing this to these guys in the minors, which is, you know, you are kind of seeing, and guys don't become closers in the minors. They become closers because they're better than anybody else in the bullpen. But they're usually at least, you know, groomed by their fellow players of, oh, dude, you've got that closer mentality or something like that. You know, you talk about somebody like Keone Kella or something like that. But I, I... you know, I go back and forth on this because guys don't have those roles in the minors. They are brought in on either rotations or if, you know, the game goes to hell, they, they're they brought in and told to go, you know, you're going three innings, 
whether your arm falls off or not. The, the, the arm falls off guys are not usually your guys with actual potential, but um, you do have guys who pitch in different roles, and you know you have guys who are starters all the way through the minors, and so it's about unlocking the rigidity within the structure at the major league level. I, I will say, and I don't know whether this is a mm-hmm. positive, a negative, or whatever, but the Lakewood team, the Blue Claws, have essentially, they have a closer, and they have, like, an Andrew Miller-style setup reliever. Like, that actually is the, yeah, Will Hibbs is the closer, and Trevor Betancourt's, like, the multi-inning setup guy. I think I've seen more multi-inning relief appearances in the majors and the minors the last couple of years generally, too. Yeah. And, um, I you know... Will Hibbs was a senior, 19th round senior side. It's probably a two. Or, Jeff and I have argued about whether he's a two or a three. He's a two. I think he's a three. Um, but he's one of, you know, and Trevor Betancourt's like, you know, a guy that has a chance to be a major league setup arm. Yeah, um, sure. I like Bet- Betancourt's slider is legitimately pretty good. Yeah, Betancourt's a, kind of a cool, but again, he's a 25th round guy yeah. that they draft, college guy that they draft as a reliever. But um, I think Dave Cameron made this point recently, and I'm not even sure where it may have like been in the comments of a Fangraphs article. Um, but we're getting to the point where if you know teams start developing more of these guys like Miller, Tenley Jansen, Wade Davis. Like, more and more of these guys are showing up, and more and more guys just in general are showing up with, like, 98 and a plus off-speed pitch. Like, this is, like, really going to change the game, the way the game is being played in ways that are kind of hard to tell. Um, And that's kind of where I got the idea that maybe Andrew Miller is the start of something because, you know, eventually teams, you know, teams are going to have two relievers at the level of Andrew Miller and Cody Allen, and then what the hell do you do with the second one? I mean, you just, know, the Yankees have that with Patances and Chapman when he's healthy. It's like just this weekend, I saw you know an average double A bullpen really on both sides for Akron and uh, New Hampshire, and there are multiple guys throwing ninety five to ninety seven with a decent breaking ball. Yeah, you know, we joke about ninety five in the slider, but there really are a ton of ninety five in the slider, and the more not, yeah, and we're starting to see more ninety sevens in the slider too. I mean, none, and of, them had, none yeah. of them had anything resembling Major League Command, which is why they're still in yeah. AA, and one of them had a five-and-a-half ERA, despite being, like, 97 from the left side with a 90-mile-an-hour slider. Sounds like a guy I saw for the Astros affiliate last week. But these guys you know, the... pop up. You know, like, uh, maybe, like, Connor Green ends up 102 with a hammer curve as a two-inning reliever. You know, the... the uh... Domingo Acevedo, the guy that's been pitching really well for Trenton, yeah. is currently, you know, a starting pitcher with a bad motion that's up to 99 with a really good slider. That's a guy that could potentially be a major league, you know, 101 with like a seven slider as a reliever. I don't think he's going to start at that, but I don't know. I didn't think Luis Severino would be able to start either. And hey, I was really wrong about that, um, although it took a while. Um, but like, they, you know, Jeffrey Ramirez is in the, you know, that Yankees team. JP Fireisens was in the Andrew Miller trade and has been bouncing around the upper levels of the Yankees farm system. Like that dude's legitimately 99 with a good slider and he like can't even establish himself at triple A. I mean, the Yankees are a bad example for this just because they literally have 30 guys like this. And I don't think any right. other team does. 
though you do see more of them certainly. Right, like I you know I don't know I'm now googling a guy that I saw last year that I have no fucking idea what's happened to. So hold on a second. Yeah, like Andrew Swanson, the one of the back end prospects in the Beltron deal, was like a guy that popped out of nowhere as a starter. Yeah, Eric with, Swanson, I think. Yeah, Eric Swanson. You said Andrew. Oh, excuse me. Um, he was. I in know. The Beltran. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Eric Swanson was in the Beltron deal, and a lot of people had a lot of feelings about him being traded all of a sudden, mm-hmm. and he's you know pop up guy who was what ninety four to ninety seven with a slider. As a starter, and the command wasn't there, and there's no third pitch, and I'm assuming he ends up in the bullpen, and he's had all kinds of injury problems, and he's currently pitching in Tampa, not particularly excitingly. But that's a guy that in three years all of a sudden could be, you know, 100 and a slider out of Major League Bullpen, just out of nowhere. And that's the guy that was a third prospect in a deal for a rental outfielder. Um, And, you know... Eight or ten years ago, that guy would be pretty high up a one-on-one list um, with the exact same skill set. Guy would probably also, already be closing in the majors, right? Like he, you know, that's how quickly this stuff has been picking up. Like, um, you know, look at Sixto Sanchez. Sixto Sanchez came back today. You know, Sixto Sixto Sanchez did not make our one-on-one last year, and he's like. A hundred with like multiple plus off speed pitches. Now he's small, and who the hell knows if he can pitch two hundred innings? And he wasn't quite that in. I was gonna say if I knew that at the time, he year. probably would have been a little higher than he was. A little bit, yeah. But okay, Adonis Medina was what like ninety five or whatever. Uh, he's in the yeah, something like that. Nineties. Yeah, you, know, you saw him in Williamsport last year, right? Yeah, for or th- four for Williamsport. thirteen pitches. For thirteen pitches. But, you know, this is a guy that did not pitch particularly well in the New York Penn League last year. He is pitching very well in the South Atlantic League this year. Or he didn't strike that many dudes out. I think he had a shiny ERA. Yes, he didn't strike that many dudes out. But this is a dude that's, like, legitimately up to, like, 97 or 98 with, like, a killer slider. And it's still kind of projectable, too. It's all very And it's projectable. Yeah, and this is a guy that, you know might make our top 50 and might not he probably isn't (laughs) yeah i mean he probably won't but like this is a back end of the top 50 prospect that's performing very well at an age-appropriate level of a ball and is like projecting for like seven and seven right now or seven and six which is not you know at some point we're probably have to readjust these pitch scales too because you know, well, if I mean, I've already started eighty fastball. I've already started really doing fastball. fastball because, like, on my sheet it says ninety to ninety one, and that's just not a five anymore. Right. No. Like, if if you look, like, I mean, it's like a five from a lefty with a weird motion. Sure. That also depends on the movement and the command and all yeah, that crap. Sure. But the, you were only supposed to adjust up or down one grade for like the movement and command, and like again, can we really have? You know, 200 pitchers throwing an 80 fastball, it's probably a little bit of a stretch. Well, I mean, Um, it's never actually been a bell curve, even though it's based on it. Sure, and we have... But once it gets way too weighted to one side, you have to start figuring things out. And I guess the the flip side would be that there's dozens and dozens and dozens of guys with 80 speed, many of whom don't even project to be useful major leaguers, like your Rico Noels of the world. Yeah. You know, Champ, uh, Champ Stewart for a Mets example. 
Sam Stewart's a high-end AD runner. Yeah. Teammate, you know, he's probably going to make the majors as, like, a September pinch runner type guy, but he's, I don't think he realistically has much of a shot to ever be even a full-time roster member, let alone a, you know, full-time major leaguer. Turn score. Turn score hit his first minor league home run the other day, which amazed me that turn score had never hit an inside-the-park home run. He might have. This might have been his first over the fence. No, this or was, was this his first. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Um, turn scores, you know. You think there was a bad A ball out, the outfielder out there somewhere that would have played something into an inside the park home run for Terrence Gore? Yeah, and Terrence Gore is a World Series ring for his skill set and can't even stick in the majors. Terrence Gore was a valuable member of a World Series roster that cannot be a valuable member of, like, a May roster. It's just weird. He's one of those weird, like, 80 runners that can't play center. Isn't, yeah. Um. So here's a question. Because baseball has kind of I've been become better at identifying these weird outlier players, do you think that this is an argument for roster expansion? My concern with roster expansion is just going to keep running out more relievers. <laughs> and the more relievers teams are carrying, the more dominant these guys can just go out and blast it for one inning, and it like kind of continues to exacerbate the problem. Well, I mean, roster expansion with rules. Like, you can only carry X number of pitchers. I, I think there might be something to that, but then, you know, teams would start carrying, like, two-way players. And, like, Which would be fun. I like I like a two-way player. I'm fine with a two-way player, you know? It, if it, seriously, I if mean, my favorite, one of my favorite non-high-end guys right now is literally a guy that plays catcher and infielder, so... You know who who can play catcher and second. So you know I'm all for a two way player. If, if somebody drafts Brandon McKay and confiscates either his glove or his pitching arm, like that's just wrong. Like just let the dude do both for a while. It'll probably become obvious which one he's better at eventually. But if it turns out with Moreland, but if it turns out. But if it turns out he's like a roll six on both sides, then you've got like a really unique, cool, incredibly valuable player. You know, if you've got a guy that can, you know, be a number three starter while also being an above average first baseman or DH, that's an incredibly valuable player. Yeah. It's kind of the more generic version of the Shohei Otani thing because he's not quite as projectable on the pitching side as Otani. Um, although I did see um, Jeff Long run up as a seven days a pitcher, which. I was, and Jeff Long knows what he's doing, so um, maybe he is that. Well, Tani's on a different level. Anything you would like to plug or discuss otherwise before we let you go, Kate? I was told we're going to do a quick half hour with Kate. uh, (laughs) A little over an hour. (laughs) An hour later. (laughs) This always happens. Um, You can find my writing at. Uh, fan rag various days of the week you can usually find it most easily on my twitter feed I write occasionally for WFAA and I did the call up on Lewis Brinson uh, on BP it should be up by the time most of you hear this I think yeah Yeah, I think we have a fantasy section now I think we're it should be up on Monday morning you may be listening to this very late Sunday night if Jeffrey edits it quickly but Craig's it will been be drinking up. all weekend, so the, uh, yeah, because that's really different from normal. The gears um, have ground to a halt a little bit. 
<laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I will not be able to answer your Matt's questions, but I will be able to answer, you know, any number of other questions that you have. Thank you for coming on, and I'm Thank sure we'll have you me. relatively soon again. Welcome back. Now it's time for the third half of the show. Before we do the third half of the show, we do housekeeping. This is for all you kids out there, episode 58. For all you kids out there, it's the official podcast of your baseball prospectus Mets local site. You can find us on the internet at mets.locals.baseballprospectus.com or on the mothership at baseballprospectus.com. We're also on iTunes. That's where you find the podcast. Search for For All You Kids Out There. And you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You want to get in contact with the show? We're on Twitter at For All You Kids. Jared's on Twitter at J.A. Seidler. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. We have a Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash For All You Kids out there. And you can email us at allyoukids at baseballprospectus.com. Uh, I'll stop plugging the Camden Yard event because you can't buy tickets for it anymore. But it is this Saturday, and we if you have tickets for it, we hope to see you there. It'll be a fun little shindig. And if not, come find us at the karaoke bar with Craig afterwards. Yes. <laughs> I believe you still can get tickets for our City Field event on July 1st. We plug it every week. You should know the deets by now. We're doing an after party that seems like a weird thing to call it well we're having a, we're doing a lot let's let's call it a live podcast yeah, so we have a live podcast recording afterwards at maggie mays in queens i think it's off the 40th street seven stop 46 or the 40th you have to take the local or you can take the express to jackson heights and get the local there if you want Um, anything else to plug oh i was on amazing avenue audio this week because chris mcshane threw his back out and what does that have to do with podcasting? I don't, I, I don't know if he was like laid up on his couch or something. He didn't have a headset he could use? I've know. done that before. Look, I just... I just answered the call when... Listen, you gotta... You, you got, if you're on a Mets podcast, you gotta act like the Mets and tough it out. <laughs> Rub enough. some dirt on it. Tough it out. I mean, it's after 11. We're both exhausted because Jared got up early to watch wrestling, which we'll get to. Um, and I don't after going to, to sleep late because I was watching wrestling. at a wrestling show, which we'll also get to. This will not be a short show, as I'm sure you've already gathered at this point. So we should move to your emails. That's yes, because we're two hours and ten minutes in and promising a long wrestling segment. So yeah, I still have to edit this. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna try and get it up first night because ugh. yeah, there is some uh, time relevant to it. We didn't actually talk about this in the first half of the show, and I meant to bring it up. So this is good timing now. We have an email from Gregory. Hi, guys. You devote a whole episode of What's Wrong with the Grom, so he starts pitching better. K, thanks, Greg. So this is, of course, in reference to an Amazing Avenue audio segment I did in 2015 when Don Grom got off to a slow start. We did a whole segment on Are You Worried About Jacob de Grom? I think we concluded not really... But maybe he was more of a number two starter that's just given up some extra home runs. And then he rolled off like a 
Clayton Kershaw-esque 16-start run, I think, really up until the uh, Philly food poisoning game. Okay, so causation and correlation are a different thing, but he sure has pitched shitty since that game where Terry pushed him, like, way too far. Yeah, it's like sometimes you just have a game. Sometimes you just have two games. You know, th- th- these things happen. Let's but, put a pin on this for, like, two weeks. Yeah, but he hasn't looked... Like, visually, it hasn't looked quite as sharp. No, his command's been off. His Which command's been off. Happen? And that happens. This happens. He was having a weird uh, season before that, like, a three true outcomes compared to what he usually is. He's been way underperforming his peripherals, whether that would be locker defense or both. Yep. Or just... It's like... Bad pitching that doesn't isn't picked up in the peripherals. That can happen too. We will come back to this, Gregory, if it continues to be a thing to try to weave whatever little podcast magic we have over Jacob Degrom. So we were literally talking in the break about how Sidney Crosby in no way deserved the Con Smythe, but might get it because the only other candidate was Jake. The, only, the best candidate was Jake Gensel, and they weren't going to give it to a rookie with twenty games. Yeah, Sidney Crosby won the Con Smythe. Sure. We have an email that's not about hockey from Jared. Not Jared. Could you discuss the history of the Conforto versus Schwarber debate? It is. Oh yeah, actually, yeah. It is interesting how the perception of who is better has flipped many times. It seems the second we think one player is definitely better than the other the other one tanks also does kevin taylor have a real hit tool put a pin on that last one for a second we'll put a pin on that last one for the second can't we just get rid of that with no well no because i was going to ask you who the starting outfielder outfield is right now for binghamton oh god uh champ stewart champ stewart is off the dl so yes he is back in center field it was patrick biondi before that uh I'm assuming it's Kevin Taylor. Yes, Kevin Taylor's like the everyday <laughs> right fielder, I think. Left fielder. I don't know. Yeah. You should get this one, because I should have gotten it and didn't. Jeez. Um, I should get it? You should get it. So it's somebody... It's like an actual prospect? No. Oh, is it uh, is Cody Decker playing the outfield for them? He might be, but it's not who the regular guy is. I think Decker's mostly been first base and a little bit of third. Yeah, I don't know. Kevin Kazmarski is the other one. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I would have gotten that one. So, like the Conforto and Schwarber are linked because the Cubs were linked to both of them as a pre-draft deal at that spot, and they were generally they were the considered... best college in the class too. At the time of the draft, I think you would have more people saying that Conforto was better, even though Schwarber was drafted higher. Um, and that that's not unusual when you're dealing with picks at that level. But I think there was a little bit of an idea that Schwarber was perhaps overdrafted at the time of the draft. That certainly been made a much bigger deal about in retrospect, I think. Yeah. The Cubs were such genius for overdrafting this player. Um, he was also, there's also, like, he was the catcher. As... But there were some people that really, really, like, our, our good friend Michael Bauman, like, fucking loved Kyle Schwarber. His like, large adult son, yes. Yeah. Like, there were people, like, the people that loved Kyle Schwarber as a, pro- as a college prospect, like, fucking, like, thought he was the best player in that draft. Sure. Um, so then, 
Schwarber as a prospect vastly out-hit Conforto. Is that fair? Yeah. Especially that, was... especially that like first year. They pushed Schwarber all the way to full season. Conforto yeah. kind of scuffled in Brooklyn. It's, yeah, I mean, it's good Brooklyn. It's just, Brooklyn's a tough place to hit, too. Especially as a lefty. Um, there's also, I think, the idea floating around at that time. Well, I mean, Conforto's defense got killed in the outfield, and people are starting to talk about, is he going to have to move to first base? And whereas Schwarber, for various reasons that have never been clear to me, people were, like, really pushing that he was going to be able to stick a catcher. Yeah, that I never thing. got that. I never got that one. I'm sorry. I, I never believed in the Kyle Schwarber. Like literally, just catcher. look at him with catcher gear on, and you could figure out pretty quickly that it was not going to go great. So you know, Schwarber's probably ahead at least until you know, probably late 2015, and then Conforto pulls back up, and then you know, in April 2016. Schwarber destroys his knee in such a way that it's clear that he's no longer going to be able to catch anymore, even if that was ever a possibility. Conforto is like one of the best hitters in baseball for five weeks. Right. And put his career in the outfield in question, too. Although, again, I don't really, you know, I don't know if he's any better or worse than he ever would have been out there. Um, It's not great. It is what it is. Um, so then Conforto tanks and Schwarber's hurt and hurt in a way that substantially screws with his outcome. But then Schwarber comes back and in the World Series looks like a superstar. The perils of seven game samples, right? Sure. Especially when it's real, especially when it's really four games and a couple pinch hitting appearances. Um, cause you know... He, he looked really good, and um, then the 2017 season happened, and Conforto's been one of the best players in baseball, and Schwarber appears to have forgotten how to hit. And they're still both uh, 24. And this can change more times. Yeah, probably although not done. The gap between them is larger than it ever has been, I think. Is that fair? Schwarber is sitting 167 and striking out nearly a third of the time. And he's not hitting for much power either. Yeah, three sixty four slug. How are they fucking playing him every day? I don't know, man. I mean, it's basically Jose Reyes with a couple extra home runs and even less defensive utility. That's rough. It is. So you know, we talked about this a little bit in the segment with Kate. This performance has been bad enough for long enough that I would certainly think about sending him down for a couple of weeks just to get together, right? I mean, it's... You know, med- mental break. Sure. I mean, the Mets said it was Conforto, and right. it seemed to work okay. And there was physical issues mixed in there. And, I mean, would you be shocked if Schwarber's nursing something and they're hiding it? It doesn't seem like something the Cubs do. He had a very, very, very serious knee, pro- knee injury. It yes. was an ACL++. plus plus. And when he came back last year, he was not playing the field. So, 
is it possible that there's something there? You know. But he's genuinely been one of the worst players in baseball this season. That's not that's there's no exaggeration there. And Conforto's genuinely been one of the best players in baseball this season. So there's a very large gap that's open there. I do wonder if would anybody still take Schwarber projected going forward? I think that's a hard one to do, right? Like it, it would be a hard call to take yeah, Schwarber. I just point. don't think like so. There's I like think the injury, right? Really like recency bias is kind of unavoidable. But by the same token, like the last couple months do matter when there's this big a gap. I feel like. It means, and it's also not for Schwarber just a couple of months. It's his entire performance in two years. Because he hasn't hit since 2015 now because he missed 2016. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think if you spit him in a projection, I think Conforto would be, like, whitehead at this point. Uh, sure. But... Especially because the projection like, system when Steve Schorber's World Series performance. Yeah. So you look um, at like whatever but, zips rest. You want to look at the zips rest of the season? Yeah, sure. I know. This will be great radio. Like, uh, all right, you look at Schorber. I'll look at Conforto. Well, no, I got both of them up already. Right, good for you. Um, Schwarber zips the rest of the season is a 110 WRC. Conforto is a 124. That's, you know, over two-thirds of a season, a pretty good gap for... Yeah, it's 1.41 gap, including projected defense. Yeah. Because Schwarber is considered a defensive disaster, and Conforto's not. That feels right-ish, I guess. That's over what both of them are projected to play. About a half season's worth more of stuff. Sure. They're, they're both projected to lose playing time that they shouldn't lose. Um, <laughs> well, at least Conforto shouldn't lose it. Um, yeah, I, you know. That's, you know. Even when, even when Schwarber was good in 2015, it's a 28% strikeout rate. Yeah. That's a red flag. That's a lot. And, uh... So what's the... If you were to make an argument for Schwarber over Conforto, what's, like, the tool-slash-skill advantage you can find at this point? Power? Yeah, I mean, I guess... It's not like Conforto... I don't think so, but that's what people are going to argue. People are going to argue raw power. I could see that, but, like, Conforto's... Seven raw, but he gets just about all of it in the game. Yeah, to all fields, and because and Schwarber is probably also seven raw, six game. Yeah, maybe seven raw, seven game. It's just, I mean, I guess he had a hit today, so he's up to one seventy one. I don't know, we've been right about Conforto, then we were wrong about Conforto, now we're right about Conforto again, and that's the beauty of uh, this job, I guess. As we were discussing earlier with Kate, um, you know, Schwarber, it's first base profile. Sure. I made a, that was I made a Twitter, 
I made a Twitter comp to Lucas Duda the other day. I think that's a reasonably generous comp in this circumstance. He's the first baseman that's trying to play the outfield. I remember way back when we did the uh, Amazing Avenue Audio draft preview for that year, You know, Alex Nelson posed a question to me, and I think it was Steve, was on the show that week. About, like, if you could only... Have, assuming they were all first basemen, which I think was seen as varying degrees of possible for all three of them at the time, would you rather have Schwarber, Conforto, or Max Pentecost? Who I think were sort of the three, you know, the three college bats in that class. Yeah. Um, you know, and Pentecost was more likely to stick at catcher than Schwarber, but he's had his own injury issues, of course. Uh, I forget who I picked. I don't think it was Conforto, though, because I was very down on Michael Conforto at the time. I came around fairly quickly. Was it Pentecost? It might have been Pentecost, actually. That's just the. He's hitting 291, 355, 495 at Dunedin right now. Yeah, that's just... I mean, that's a guy that's been physically sapped by Anders. Yeah, and he's splitting his time between catcher, first base, and DH. Impressed that he's catching it all. Yeah. Um, it's still my make. Catchers are weird. Sure. It's not really like catcher, but catchers are weird. <laughs> we'll pretend he's a catcher for the sake of this discussion. Yeah. And I mean, Just, he's hit, when he's been healthy, he's hit. Sure. At every level that he's played at, more or less. So, and he's now a 24-year-old in advanced day, but he also missed a full year. And we'll eventually see him a gazillion times. Yeah, I see a lot of New Hampshire. So do I. Our next email is from Tom. Which is more likely? A, the 2017 Mets make the playoffs. B, the Mets decide since they're already out of it, there's no use burning a year of service time for Rosario. Keep him down in Vegas until the end of April 2018 to claw back another year of control, all due to his plate discipline, of course. All right, so um, playoff odds of BP. Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. Coming into the day, what would you estimate the Mets' playoff odds were? It's quite guessing. Pakoda still thinks they're pretty good the rest of the way. I will say it does. 6%. 83 All right, close. I almost said 7 but... Is there more than an 8.3% chance that they figure out a way to keep Rosario down? I think the answer is yes. I think so. So I think the most likely scenario actually is... I do think they're going to call him up, but I think it's probably 80-20, not 92-8. That they don't think um, they're out of it and they make some small buys and still don't call up Rosario. (laughs) I don't know what I you're think buying. they're going to... So, here's the thing. They love pushing the either promotion or return of players sometime around the trade deadline is bigger than any trade they could make. They love doing that. They do. So, I, I think they might push Ahmed Rosario is bigger than any trade upgrade we could make. I guess they could do that. But again, we, it comes back to the problem we talked about in the first half. They actually got to play him every day. <sighs> I mean, again, we're assuming they're going to have to DFA Reyes yeah. to get Rosario up anyway. And 
You know, it's mean, it's mean, like, you know, Neil Walker doesn't re-aggravate his knee or whatever, which is certainly possible. Right, like, this feels like it should work itself out. Yeah. A lot of guys that, you know... Have a history of getting injuries. hurt. yeah. I mean, that's so, like, <laughs> the, the most likely scenario is actually they call him up, Collins plays him for two weeks, he hits, like, an empty 240, and then he just buried on the bench for the rest of the year. <laughs> Which could happen. I just... I know. We've, we've covered you being mad online. We're trying to be a little more mellow now that it's getting late. Played Michael... He started Michael Kadire in game one of playoffs. Yeah, like, yeah I was just, there. You know, so bad. Brady sent us an email. That's going to transition into the wrestling segment. So yeah. I will uh, check the podcast group. Question for the pod, this is from Tom. What are your thoughts on offering Flores an extension? If he continues somewhat at this pace offensively and becomes the everyday third baseman, what kind of money would he be looking at in arbitration next year? So you said a few weeks ago he was going to get a very big raise. Well, guess what? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well. I was assuming he was not going to play very much moving forward. Or hit like 320. Um, so, it's funny, because they're not going to get a huge discount, because he only has two years of control left, as we've talked about. Um, uh, I mean, maybe he's the kind of type of guy that would take a Juan Ligaris-type extension. Probably a little more guaranteed money than that, but... It's a high bonus guy. He's already into his arbitration years. He's going to, you know, as it stands right now, he'll be a free agent at 28, which is... Young-ish. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. If you offered Gilmore Flores an extension right now, what would it look like? It's weird, because players don't usually sign extensions this late. Yeah. At least not, like, a significant team discount. No. Like, you would usually... Sign it before this offseason, I think. Yeah, it sounds right. I mean, I'm kind of um, three and change. Kind of looking. I'm trying to look for a comp on. Uh, What's his baseball <sighs> reference player comps? I wouldn't even know. It's. D. Gordon signed one right about the service time for five and fifty. That seems about right. Yeah, I could see that. That, that, that kind of seems two very different players, but yes. Yeah, but there's like a lot. There's not a lot of like medium long term extensions at the service time. Yeah. Um, especially good players. Like there's bad players that extend for this. You know, if you go back. Well, you know, like Alexei Ramirez, 4-32. Wasn't that... What was the uh, Jed Jerko deal? That was earlier, though, wasn't it? That was earlier, yeah. Uh, Kyle Seeger signed right around this point in time for 7-100, but more established, better player. Yeah. Uh, Will Myers is not bad. Will Myers signed for 6-83. Again, I think a better, more established yeah. player. That was also a deal that got panned. I feel like 550, 660, something like that. 
That that just feels about right. Yeah, I agree with that. Now that's what I think he would sign. I'm not. I don't think the Mets would actually offer that. Correct. Uh, got another question from Tom. Question for the pod: How much better would the starting pitching be if they had a better defense behind them? Does the limited range of Walker and Cabrera up the middle really make for a noticeable difference with the Mets having mostly ground ball pitchers? Yes. Yeah. They have the worst defensive efficiency in baseball, and it's especially egregious uh, on ground balls. Yeah. Um, the. Um, what are you furiously Googling now? Yeah, I mean the team Babbitt's three twenty one. That's bad. Pitchers that are supposed pitchers that are supposed to be good. Yeah. You can question whether they're actually good or not, but they were at least supposed to be good. That's the worst in baseball by six points. Yeah. That's the worst in the NL by thirteen. Yeah, it's great. Great. And this has been a long-standing problem for this organization. Well, you know, you want to gotta you're trying to find cheap players and plug them into spots. You're going to have to give up something. So you tend teams have tended to. Sign either offensive specialists or defensive specialists, and the Mets have tended towards offensive specialists, which is a nice way of saying that they tend to run middle infielders that can't field the ball. Now, as we transition to the wrestling portion of the show, an email from Brady. Okada is probably going to go down as the greatest wrestler of all time, but where does that leave Omega? P.S. I'll watch King of Gate soon and get back to you. Signed, Mike Sempervivi's favorite regular caller, Brady. So go ahead. So I would actually like to, I would like to discuss both parts of this. Sure. Is Okada going to go down as the greatest wrestler of all time? So, I think there's... Five schools of thought on this right now. Oh, by the way, just, just for something... The Long Beach matches for the New Japan, it looks like the world title match is going to be Okada versus Cody Rhodes, and the Intercontinental title match is going to be Tanahashi versus Billy Gunn. Really? Isn't <laughs> yeah. Billy Gunn, like, good now, though? No, he's still Billy Gunn. Right, it's, like it's, it's an ironic thing. Yeah. Um, so I think there Take are five, I think there are five schools of thoughts on this, yeah. Five schools of so, thought? So, okay. I'm just going to start. So there's, like, the... The the chalk I think is Ric Flair. Yes. If you ask a, so, a a person that's fairly knowledgeable about pro wrestling in general, um, who the greatest wrestler of all time is, the answer is going to be Ric Flair. Part of that is because WWE has built him as such for a yes. very long time now, and he had you know he certainly had a run in the mid to late eighties where he was. Very arguably the best worker in the world. Certainly one of the better draws. I mean, really, the late seventies to sure. the early nineties. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess late, late seventies. I think is still a little more Harley Race, but but we've also large portions of Ric Flair's career are lost to destroyed videotapes, to yeah. house shows that were never taped. The 
Ric Flair, Ric Flair professional wrestler and Kazuchika Okada professional wrestler are not the same jobs. Kazuchika Okada is going out there to have a killer match every four, to have a five star match every four to six weeks. Ric Flair is going out there to have a killer match eight times a week. Yeah. All over the world. And he's going, you know, 60 minute Broadway regularly. And that's what he would do in a lot of these territories as touring champ, how you'd get the, you know, whether it was like Mike Graham or Tommy Rich or Buzz Sawyer or JYD. Barry Windham. Barry Windham. I mean, Windham could actually do a 60-minute draw, is what I'm saying, and make it... Oh, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. JYD like, Buzz Sawyer and Tommy Rich are not, yeah. His famous 60-minute matches that you'll hear people talk about are Barry Windham and Ricky Steamboat. Right, who are two of the... I mean, Windham's certainly one of the most underrated workers of all time, and Steamboat's just flat-out one of the best, probably the best babyface worker of all time. Yes. So there's Ric Flair. It's sort of like... It's sort of like the wrestling total package. Um... The probably the closest comp for Okada, and I know you're about to dispute this, but that has a little bit of flair, but also maybe more in the in the mode of how Okada works is Mitsuhara Misawa. It's interesting because I was actually going to say Shawn Michaels. Huh. But Misawa's in this. I think you can, you know, I assume the people that are going to come up here are Misawa, Kobashi, and Shawn Michaels. Uh, somebody else because you said five. So who did I have? Uh, Kobashi, Shawn Michaels, uh, Eddie Guerrero, maybe. No, I didn't include Eddie. I think you can make a case for Eddie, but I think he's like, and that's like more my personal thing. So I don't want to do a. Sure, then that's you know. Um. Oh no, the weirdo old guys. I think the Destroyer was the best wrestler ever. Is the other one. Uh, that's like just, you start getting so far back. I know. You know, if you start get if you start going there, you end up inevitably with Luthez. Sure. So, I guess you know, like Terry Funk he, Jr. too is another one. Terry Funk would be in that discussion for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like you, you start getting like. The world before Televised, and we're going to discuss Televised Wrestling and how all this stuff has changed in some length in a few minutes. Um, but, like, you can't, like, go back, like, the world before Televised, like, the whole untelevised territory is just, like, a totally different thing. Yep. Um, the fifth person that I'd actually mention is Steve Austin. Yeah. And I think Steve Austin is very underrated as a performer. Yeah. But you have to include the fact that he's arguably the greatest draw of all time, too. Right. When you're looking at that whole package. Yep. Um, so I guess you have to sort of be like, what do you mean when you mean greatest wrestler of all time? Is it literally, is it like most outstanding or is it Dez Flair? And is it higher, you know, highest peak? Is it highest consistent level? Because, you know... Mitsuhara Misawa, when they were wrestling house show tag matches, those matches, they were going all out. They had yeah. broadways. They were doing five-star matches. I mean, if you actually Kazuchika Okada, Okada, Okada tags in, does two spots, and the match is cool, and Yoshihashi works most of it. I mean, there would be a random, you know, Misawa and company versus Kawada and company tag from, like, 93 with, like, I don't even know, like, Masanobi Fuji in there, probably, and, like, Kobashi and there's, as like, the young boy, bro, bald and there's, guy. Like, 
90 yeah. minute broadways that are five star match. Yeah, yeah, and just like yeah. whatever 3,000 seat building in Osaka they're running. Right, and that match in New Japan is Kazuchiko Okada, Yoshihashi, and Rapangi Vice versus Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, and Yujiro Takahashi, and Okada's working two spots and standing on the apron for the rest of the match. Yeah. And that's also a reason that Kazuchiko Okada's a lot healthier than those guys right now. Sure, but I mean, even like, you know, Misawa, basically, from, let's say, his match with Jumbo in... June 1990 to his match with Kobashi in 2003. That's a 13-year run of like just 30 to so 40 four-star matches a year. Plus he was a huge draw. You know, well, Kata's becoming a huge draw. Yes. At least by the standards of current Japanese wrestling. Which, again, is not what it was in the 90s. New Japan's business right now is not doing what All Japan was when Misawa... Now, it's going I mean, like, around like, the eyes yeah. of Misawa business, yeah. but, you know... But, like, yeah, by the same token, like, you know, like, the Hashimoto Dome shows were doing more than... E, you know, um... Essentially, what's come out since then is oh, that they were lying constantly about their. Uh, yeah, they were they were massively inflating their numbers back in that day, and now they're not anymore because they actually report their numbers publicly now. Yeah, uh, which is how we know, for example, that you know, Kazuchika Okada is probably not going to WWE because he's making like two and a half million a year, right? And WWE not not going to pay him that, for example. Because that's something that we know that Kazuchiko Okada is making like two and a half million dollars a year, roughly. Um, and they broke, the, you know, the the New Japan deal going back to '72 was they would never sign anybody to longer than one year contract. Yep. And they signed Okada to a five year contract so they wouldn't lose him at that money. So, um, Okada could not do these kinds of matches. No, absolutely not. Also, you know, because the Okada, because these the matches that Okada is wrestling with Kenny Omega, with Katsushiro Shibata, with Kota Ibushi, are much more athletic and much more wear and tear individually on the body than even your five star Masao and Kobashi. Yeah, no, for all we. For all that sort of started, it started the arms race for that stuff. Like, it still wasn't as intense a style as it is nowadays. Right. Like, the bars just kept getting ratcheted up back from, like, the first time Kobashi no-sold a, you know, backdrop driver from Dr. Destiny Williams to whatever we have today. Now... Something that Okada has in his favor is he's banked probably two or three years as the consensus best guy in the world and five years as one of the consensus best guys in the world. Sure. And as a as a top level main eventer, and he's only twenty nine. Yeah. Misawa and Kobashi were just starting to get pushed to this level at that age. Yeah. So I mean, that's you know the... if he stays healthy, he's right. going so to have a lot more years. Yes, but that was, you know, Barry Windham, if he stayed healthy, would have been the best wrestler ever, too. Yeah. He didn't. His knees went. Um, Kenta Kobashi, if he had stayed healthy, 
would have set the bar so high that nobody ever would have caught it, and his knees went too, and then he got cancer. Um, so a lot of shit can happen, but it's also very possible he could have fifteen years. He could have fifteen more years like this, in which case he would be the best wrestler ever. Consensus, sure. I think, or at least among the people that you know would include Japanese wrestling. Another advantage that he has is that this stuff is all very easily accessible now. Yep. Um, it's as easy as watching any Ric Flair match that's available, really. Right. But it's all there. Yep. Like, there's... As a Chico Okada is never going to have a hidden a hidden five-star match that nobody's ever going to say. Right. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how this has changed. Because um, I know your experience isn't exactly the same as mine. I used to get wrestling tapes from a, like, shady tape dealer, like, Asian tape market and, like, a shady flea market that was by my grandmother's house. And I would get them, like, gazillionth generation, like, months later. Yeah, I mean, that's the same. I mean, I got them through either High Spots or Lynch, but it was the same thing. Right. And eventually I moved to getting them through High Spots and RF, but... um, Yeah, you got the... So you got... There was a card that looked good... Or whatever it was, or it, or it had good, or it had good write-ups in the Observer and the Torch. Yep, because uh, that was that was really how the Observer and the why people read the Observer and the Torch back in the day it was to find out what to watch, basically, yep. what to trade. They were tape trading. Yeah, and if you wanted more like specifically Japanese stuff, you had like Zach Arnold and Stewart and uh, That's a little bit, Death Valley yeah. Driver Video Review, the other arena. There were a million sites like this. We were right. on all of them in the late '90s and early 2000s. Sure, but, uh, but yeah, so I, you know, tape would look good. Obviously, for, as a Toriyama Dragon Gate guy, you know, Jay's site, which has been going for like 15 years now, uh, was Toriyama USA, and then was Dragon Gate USA, is now I Heart DG. You know, if there was a show that looked interesting, and he would like actually say like, "This is what's on uh, Gaura this month. These are the shows that they taped for it." Because even in those days, you get, like, clips of matches from various shows sometimes. You wouldn't necessarily get full matches. Like, right. the big shows, the Corrigan Hall, I mean, even back then, like, they had three or four big shows a year. You'd get, like, the full, like, it'd be, it'd be a two VHS set. Could be, like, a three-and-a-half-hour right. show. But that looked interesting. I so could... You'd get it probably, the bigger shows, maybe a few weeks after. Assuming, like, whoever their tape yeah. source was in Japan was getting it out quickly. Literally, snail mailing tapes yep. over the Pacific that people would then dub on yes. multi-deck VCRs. Yep. And sometimes many, many times. Yes, and this assumed it was on... This assumed these promotions well, video on TV. Quality, video quality wasn't always the greatest either. No, it was not. Now, almost any promotion in the world... Yes. Certainly any promotion that's significantly... New Japan... I can watch nearly every show New Japan does, certainly every match of any significance they put up there. I can beam it to any one of my three TVs or any computer or mobile phone I use for $8.50 a month. Live. Most of them have English commentary now, too. Because that was always a big... uh, A lot of people would refuse to watch foreign wrestling because it didn't have English commentary. New Japan brings in Kevin Kelly and Don Callis for any kind of major event at this point. The major Cork and Hall shows, 
you know, they brought him in for the best of Super Junior, for a lot of the best of Super Juniors. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Certainly all the major pay-per-views. Every G1, I think they're doing in English this year. Um, you know, even... I remember thinking how remarkable it was. I think the first year they did this was 2012, where you could actually buy a streaming G1 package. I think it was like 50 bucks or something like that. Yeah. You got every G1 show, and I was like, wow, this is fucking amazing! And it wasn't nearly this good a quality, and it was way more money, and it was only G1. And it was only G1 in the major pay-per-views. And you had to do all kinds of hurdles to get it because it was only supposed to be for the Japanese market. But you could, like, you know, do your translate. You know, New Japan World, it's not a perfect English site or anything, but it's navigable, especially with Google Translate. And we're saying New Japan World because we're talking about New Japan. Stardom has a service like this. DDT has a service. Uh, RevPro Rev does. Progress does. Yeah, yeah. Flow Slam's I, got a whole bunch. Chikara I, does it. Doesn't, but they still do iPay-Per-Views. All their big live shows are available live, yeah. Obviously, WWE. Tons of these places have like teamed up with High Spots, which is now the High Spots streaming service, as opposed yep. to High Spots ordering tapes. Yep. You know, Flow Slam... ROH has ROH ringside or whatever the hell it is. Obviously, the WWE Network. This is your wrestling experience now is completely different from anybody's wrestling experience ever has been. And this is a point I'd like to make. And I know sometimes we bitch about WWE, and we may even do that for three seconds <laughs> today because that pay per view was not very good except for the main event. If you are watching Raw and you feel like it's a waste of time and you feel like it sucks, turn it off and find something better. Because there is something out there for you. You can buzz through Raw in 20 minutes on your DVR. If you want to. And you can use the two and a half hours you save to watch wrestling that you'll actually fucking enjoy. So, like, don't be that person. And I know the point you made uh, is as good as that five-way was. Like As good as that five-way was, there were three matches on the New Japan show that were a million times better. I saw a match in a House of Pierogies in Enfield that was that quality. Right, you know, the Alberto... Yeah, I went to an indie show in Atlantic City on Saturday night. Um, it was headlined by Alberto El Patron versus Pentagon. Which wasn't quite as good as the five way, but wasn't that much worse either. And, you know, that's a, some random indie show that's drawn 200 people. They must have taken a fucking bath given all the fly ins they did, but, you know, that's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. You know, you can go, you know, I obviously went to, went to WrestleMania the last couple of years. You can, for five days in Orlando, essentially go to a show at any time day or night that's going to have top-level workers in multiple four-star matches. This is, again, unique in the course of wrestling history. This is not something that... You know, you used to be limited to what territory you were in and what guys were in that territory at a time. And maybe if you did some tape trading or did some buying at a tape store, that's all you could do. Enjoy it! This is good. This is like the gold. This is going to be considered like the golden age of all of this shit because it's probably going to fall out at some point again too. 
You're not getting the uh, Coliseum home videos out of Blockbuster. Right. Oh, I did that, too. Yeah, I did, too. Yeah. Because they had stuff on them that, you know, they always used to do those comps of, like, you know, the Calcio Matt, you know, best of the WWF that would have a bunch of stuff that wouldn't be released otherwise. Some random good, like, Bret Hart MSG match or something. Well, yeah, I always stuck shit off of the European tours off of there. Yeah. Um, so I guess that brings so, us to Omega Okada 2, so go ahead. Yeah, I thought this was the best match I've ever seen. Yeah. And that's, you know, covering, and I watched it back just to make sure, because, you know, sometimes you can get caught up in the match, and sure. getting caught up in the match is something that indicates that it's that, but it wasn't that I got caught up in the match. This, they, you know, spoiler, they went to a 60-minute Broadway, you probably already know that. Um, I mean, if you're still listening to the podcast at this point, yes. Right. Um, I, you know, everybody's waiting for Dave Meltzer's star rating because he gave the first one six stars, and I think the consensus is that this one was better, and he retweeted a picture of all the stars in the universe, which I thought was actually a pretty, pretty good joke. Yeah. Um, and he's clearly indicated that he's going to, you know, it's at least going to be a five-star match. Right. It's probably going to have some special designation past that. Um, New Japan had not done a 60-minute Broadway in, like, 15 years. The last time they did it was, like, with Black Tights Nakamura. Um, I think it was, like, Black Tights Nakamura versus Kojima, so that tells you how long ago it was. Yeah. Why did I think it was, like, some uh, random, like, Manabu Nakanishi match? Well, there was a period where they were doing them a lot. Okay, like, that might be why. And then, as soon as it's like they had like Nakanishi as against soon as, like ten as soon as the got turfed, and... as soon as the Inokis got turfed and Gato took over the booking, they stopped doing <laughs> yeah. sixty minute draws. <laughs> they stopped doing a lot of shit they used to do. Yeah. Um, which Yuji Nagata is apparently wrestling in his last G one this year, so that could be fun. Yeah. Speaking as a guy that's underrated because his career was in that era. Um, they. I mean, so this is a 60-minute Broadway, and I know some people have mentioned that they thought the first, like, 15 or 20 minutes were slow. They were literally doing finisher reversals four minutes in to a 60-minute Broadway. Like, think about that. Um, they definitely prostituted... They prostituted the hell out of the Rainmaker and the Dropkick, and, um... Omega's picked up Nakamura's Bamaiyei, and they definitely put, they did, like, 20 of them. Because that, you know... But they only did one one-winged angel. Um, they have kept the one-winged angel as, like, a super finish that nobody could kick out of it. Basically since... Definitely since Omega joined the heavyweight division, but I think basically since he became a regular there. And he did not hit the one-winged angel in the 46-minute... Tokyo Dome match, he hit it at 48 minutes of this match, so you're thinking, okay, this is the finish. Except Okada at, like, 2.9, like, his leg just drifts over with perfect timing to the rope. His one leg that's open. Um, there were a lot of really interesting psychological edges. Like, when I say they haven't done an hour Broadway... They do semi-frequently in G1 do 30-minute Broadways. They usually do one every year or one every other year. 
they inverted that trope when Kenny Omega won the G1. It was in the semi, it was in the block finals. It wasn't in the finals, but um, he needed to win and not draw to make it. And he won with like 30 seconds left. So it like opened up the idea that they could like go 58 minutes and still do a finish. Right. Like, if you remember, WWE did that with Shawn Michaels and John Cena about 10 years ago. I think they went, like, 56 minutes and then did a finish right before the time limit draw. Yeah. I think that was actually a Raw match, Smackdown, too. I think, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so, there were several very close near falls. Like, there there was a small package spot at 58.30 that I thought was the finish. Um. Like so, basically the the storyline of the match is that Okada's just beating the shit out of Omega, but Omega won't quit. Right. It was it was not a double turn, but it was clearly designed to turn Omega face in kind of like a Steve Austin sort of role. Um, that's clearly what they've been positioning him as for a while. It was very effective. I mean, they had the crowd going nuts for him by the end of the match, and he's supposed to be the top heel of the promotion. They just did, they did a lot of callback spots. They even, the finish to the co-main event was Tanahashi over Naito, which was also a really great match, which is now the second time that they've had like a four and a half star match that nobody talked about because it was underneath Nokado Omega. Yeah. But they had Tanahashi win with, the Texas Cloverleaf, although he did like a lion tamer version of it. Yeah. Which established that his secondary finish could win a match. So when Okada is hitting like the tombstone or hitting his like super drop kicks or when Omega is hitting the Bamaye, that establishes that, you know, Omega hitting like a really sick top rope Bamaye, like that could be the finish. It doesn't have to be the one winged angel. Um, there was just a lot of really cool, they did a lot of callbacks to spots in the first match, um, especially the memorable spots, the top rope dragon suplex they played off of, they played off of the table spot. When they ended up doing a table spot, they did the Shane McMahon leap of faith. Okada did a top rope to the outside elbow. And of course the table didn't break. Um, they... There was, like, stuff coming into the match where it took, you know, they, um, Okada needed four Rainmakers to beat Omega in the first match. So Omega in the promo the day before this match says, it's going to take five to beat me this time. Like, there's no way you're actually going to hit five Rainmakers. (laughs) So at 59.30, he hit the fifth Rainmaker, but they both collapsed. And Okada was crawling over to make the cover and landed like a couple inches short at like 59, 55. And then they rang the bell with him coming up just short. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there are people that will say it cannot be one of the greatest matches ever because it was a time limit draw. It did not finish. I don't necessarily think that's true. I mean, they know wrestling is a work, right? Right, and this was the correct finish. I, I do not think, I, you know, they could have put, Okada going over would have been bad, and I think they were correct to keep the title on Okada. So, 
it's New Japan, you're not going like do like a fucking double count out. Right. You do a time limit draw, and if you do a time limit draw once every ten or fifteen years, that's fine. Yeah, and as you said, I think we talked about it a little bit on a recent show. We said, well, since they went forty eight minutes or forty seven minutes, whatever, in the first match, it's easier to hide the fact that you're going Broadway since you already did a very long match. And you also have confidence that they're going to be able to work that match and not have it suck. Yeah. Which, you know, this could have turned into the Seth Rollins Triple H match from WrestleMania. Yeah. Where it just went way too long. That that was a 28-minute match that felt like it was two hours. This was a 60-minute match that felt like it was a 20-minute match. Um, they did not run out of stuff to do. They did not run out of plot. Um. So basically the plot of the last 35 minutes of the match is that Omega keeps getting closer and closer and closer to finishing Okada, but then Okada would pull a dropkick out of nowhere, or Rainmaker out of nowhere, or Tombstone Reversal out of nowhere, and just, like, cut him off. And then he beat him up for a while. Um, they teased Cody Rhodes throwing in the towel at one point because Omega was getting beat up too badly. But, you know, Omega, the heel that's actually a fiery baby face at this point, you know, refuses to let him throw in the towel. Um, Omega got carried out. Okada did not. Omega got carried out to massive cheers and Kenny Chance. Um... And this is apparently all leading to Okada versus Cody Rhodes in Long Beach. I'm sorry. I know people have tickets to that. I know it's going to still be a very good show. But, like, the idea that people had when they were thinking that this match might go Broadway was that they'd bring it back in Long Beach. Instead, I think it's pretty clear they're probably bringing it back at the Dome next year instead. Yeah. Which, again, is, you know, they could do it in the G1 Finals. They could do it at the October pay-per-view. A lot of this may depend on what Omega's future is. This does get back to Brady's original question that we never answered. Yeah. 20 minutes Where's that later. Where's that Kenny Omega? Um, I, up until about this time last year, was never much of a Kenny Omega fan. Were you much of a Kenny? You actually probably saw more Kenny Omega than I did given your predilections towards wrestling. Yeah, I mean, he was fine as, like, a American babyface in Japan, kind of. Yeah, it was I, like... I, I know I saw uh, some in some, like, so DDT stuff, and he was fine. Yeah. You watch a little bit more DDT stuff than I have. I do enjoy yeah, the dynamic I, dream team. You know, he was Kota Ibushi's tag team partner. That yeah. Sometimes worked at Arkin Indies. He always seemed a little bit forced to me. Um, like, he would do, like, the Hadouken stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, his finisher like, is literally like called the forced, One-Winged Angel. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, forced, you know, Japanophile type stuff. Yeah, yes. Which, for, which for you, like, younger millennials in the audience is a Final Fantasy VII reference. Right. It always felt a little bit forced. I He was one of those guys that... He's a good fine worker. He's yeah, a yeah, good yeah. hand. He cuts a decent promo. He's like every like it's like indistinguishable from a bunch of dudes on the indies that also work Japan. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, like maybe like a Roderick Strong kind of guy. Sure, that's a, that's a pretty good comp, actually. Yeah, that kind of, um, you know, good utility guy. He popped up in ROH from time to time. I probably saw him most in JPW <laughs> back in the day. Right, right, yeah. There a lot. Um, fine, but you know. Um, so he signs with New Japan. He has a mediocre one-year run in the junior division. Like, his run in the juniors was not very good. Um, and then they promote him to the top gaijin heel in the heavyweight division, and it's like, what the hell? I mean, literally because AJ Styles left. AJ Styles and Nakamura both left at the same time. The guy they probably would have promoted to top gaijin heel was Carl Anderson, who also left. Yeah. Um, and they just picked a dude. And it flopped for, like, six months, and they kept pushing it. And it was basically last year's G1 that got him over, more or less? Yeah, the last year is the end of G1. They, you know, he had... Because I remember you, basically... like, texting me, like, close to the final. I think I was, like, in Tennessee. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, was it Naito's totally going to win the G1? There's no way Omega's going over. <laughs> yeah, like, they had set up... Like, the, they had set up, I think the A-block winner was Hiroki Goto. Okay, yeah, they're not putting Hiroki Goto over, yeah. right? So the B-block final match is Naito versus uh, Omega. And everything looks like they're building to Okada versus Naito at the Dome. They had just done that as a program. It looked like they were going to go back to it. And Omega won the match. So the... Omega versus Hiroki. They're going to put fucking Hiroki Goto in the fucking Tokyo Dome main event. No, Omega wins that match, too. But they're both great matches. And Omega starts getting over. And he has more great matches and more great matches. Um, He also... um, He got himself over, I think, greatly in association with the Young Bucks. Sure. Um, he started a YouTube series with the Young Bucks that kind of started showing his personality not as, like, a weird Japanophile, but, like, as an actual personality. Um, his promos improved a million percent. And I don't know if he really improved a ton as a worker so much as he was put in a position to have these amazing epic matches. Um, and put with the people that he could have these amazing epic matches with. But he essentially gets over because Tetsuya Naito goes nuts for a half hour to put him over in that match. That's really what got him over. Um, and then he goes out against Okada and works what's generally considered the greatest match of all time. He then spends two months pretending he's going to WWE. Yeah. Which gets himself even more over. And he worked a match of the couple of matches of the year candidates with Tomohiro Ishii, and then did this. And you know, I don't think Omega is going to put together the body of work to be considered an all-time great, but he could. You know, AJ Styles might not be the worst comp here. AJ Styles came into New Japan having a reputation as a very good worker 
that had been kind of underutilized for many years and left considered one of the biggest stars and the best workers in the world and is now one of the biggest stars and the best worker in WWE. So, you know, I don't, I don't think Omega is like an all-time great here. He might end up being remembered as the all-time great rival of Kazuchika Okada. Even over Tanahashi a, at this point. I think we're probably there, yeah. I mean, it's... Tanahashi might be the Harley race, and Omega might be the Ricky Steamboat if we're looking at the Ric Flair comp for Okada. Sure, okay. Um, which doesn't work exactly because Steamboat and Flair were having matches even before yeah, they were Flair and race. They were the U.S. title in the 70s. Right, but... You know, again, that's something that's lost in the Ric Flair narrative because very little of it was taped. So people that weren't watching Mid-Atlantic in 1979 don't even know what happened. Ric Flair contends that his best matches with Ricky Steamboat were not the New Orleans and Chicago and national matches in 1989, but house show matches that, like, a thousand people saw. Very and plausible. Greensboro and Charlotte and those kinds of places. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, I'm assuming Omega's probably going to go to WWE at some point. Sure, at some point. You know, he might not. He could be the North American face of the New Japan expansion. Certainly a better fit for that than Cody Rhodes. Yeah. Excuse me, Cody the American Nightmare. Really, he's not that's, allowed that's to be really something. Uh... He's not allowed to. They can't use the Cody Rhodes name, so he's Cody the American Nightmare. I mean, well, I guess technically his last name it's is it trademark? His last name is Reynolds. Reynolds. Yeah. WWE trademark Cody Rhodes. Yeah. Something. So either has to be Cody Reynolds or just Cody. Gotcha. And he's what just Cody. Um. Yeah, I, you know, obviously the success of AJ Styles might lead Omega to go to WWE at some point. Yep. Uh, again, they'd have, it's like the Styles and the Nakamura thing. They'd have to offer him so much money that they'd have to push him. Right, right. Because he's making a hell of a lot of money in New Japan. These guys are making, you know, mid to high six figures, so they're not going to WWE for much less than that. He's like a legitimate star there too it's not just and he's he speaks even more than styles he's been established over there for quite some time right he speaks japanese he has lived there at points um and he's also um i guess perhaps a reason that he might not go aj styles was going nuts when he was working for new japan he was working indies all over the world. He was having shots every, like, four shots a week, every week. Omega's working a very light schedule. He hardly ever works outside of New Japan. He takes maybe a shot or two a month. He's not on every New Japan tour. Um, so he has a very light schedule, which could be something that he'd prefer. Now, you don't know. And, you know... He's one of those guys that's claimed at times that he cares more about the art than the money. And 
he ain't getting to do our Broadways against Kazuchiko Okada in WWE. Um, yeah, so um, I assume you're probably going to watch the match at some point. Yeah, I mean, I would have watched it today. I just was driving back couldn't... from New Hampshire. Yeah, um, obviously it'll be uh, it will be on Access TV in I think about two weeks. Um, and I suspect with Jim Ross calling it, it's probably going to be an even better match. Are they still, I didn't think they were still letting Ross do access. Ross is still doing access for the rest of the year. Ross is calling the New Japan shows, the live shows. He has a, he still has a contract with New Japan. Yeah. is letting him fill his, fulfill his New Japan contract even though he's going to be on the WWE UK product, the Mae Young Classic, and whatever the hell else they decide to put him on. Speaking so, um, of WWE, you want to do five minutes on Extreme Rules? Sure. I mean, the main event was... I literally watched the first match and then turned it off. It's, I don't want to watch this. And hey, I, they gave you the, know. that that Miz Ambrose match was like twenty five minutes for a fuck finish. That's a bad match, too. It wasn't good, yeah. You know, you don't need to watch that shit if you don't want to. I don't. I just did something else. I don't know what it was. All right. Um, you know, the five way was. I think Meltzer gave it four and a half stars. That's within the range that you know. But again, as we discussed earlier. Four, four, you know, four, four and a quarter, four and a half star matches, not that rare anymore. Especially multi-man clusterfuck matches. Yeah. Um, and like your random WWE pay-per-view, you're not getting like the pageantry and the spectacularness of like WrestleMania or anything no, like, like that. That was either. the thing when I was watching. I think the the Ambrose Miz match, especially, it's like this just, just feels raw. like a raw. It's just a raw. The regular pay-per-views since they did the brand split have turned into just another television show. With no commercial breaks, and sometimes the matches are better, and sometimes they're not. I mean, they still sort of have commercial breaks. Just not during uh, the matches, I guess. They, like, completed the Bailey burial by having Alexa Bliss squash her in six minutes with almost no offense. Except for Alexa Bliss uh, took two of Bailey's finishers and just, like, got up right after them. <laughs> like, just total burial. What's, is there total a reason burial. for that? What's the reason for that? I don't think they... Get the bit. So, if you ask Meltzer and if you ask writers that have recently left there, they view the Brian Danielson situation or the Daniel Bryan situation as a great booking success, and they feel that to get an underdog character over, you have to squash them repeatedly because that's what they did with Daniel Bryan for like three years. Yeah, but they they didn't actually view that. You have to squash them into oblivion, and then the fans will sympathize with them. But this is not how you book wrestling. No. Also, yes. they didn't do that on purpose. They just kept squashing Daniel Bryan because they didn't like Daniel Bryan, or if they came right. the they future forgot, star. They've forgotten, they forgotten about that part. Right. That they it's, intentionally handicapped him. WWE often does retroactively justifying their terrible decisions. So the two characters that they have apparently picked for this underdog babyface long-term role are Bailey and Sami Zayn. Yes, of course. The two people that like should be 
huge stars for them. Yeah, at least they didn't pick Finn Balor. At least they're smart enough to realize they actually have to give Finn Balor like credible stuff. Because they could have picked Finn Balor for that too. I guess it's tough with like the demon stuff is so like. They haven't weird. brought the demon stuff back. So he's been back three months now. They haven't done anything with the demon stuff. I think that's gone now. Which is weird I think because just... that also like helped get him over immediately. Yeah, and maybe it'll come back eventually, but there's no, you know, he doesn't talk about, it. it's now all my fans, the Balor Club, yeah, yeah. there's no more demon stuff anymore. Alright. Um, so the five moments were a very good match, um, they made the interesting booking decision of putting Samoa Joe over Strong, uh, which means they're doing Samoa Joe versus Brock Lesnar. I mean, this could be a really fucking good match. If this match happened in 2003, like, this was, like, a dream match of all dream matches in, like, that 03-04 period. I think Uh, a motivated Lesnar is a better worker now than he is then. Joe is not. Joe is not, and it's a worse... Yeah. I think Joe will be Uh, up for this one, though. My fear is that it's an eight-minute extended squash because they don't see Joe as that level of star. I mean, he's and they pretty over Les- at the end of they, that match, which I did go back. And they want to get and they want to get Lesnar over for Braun Strowman at SummerSlam, so they squash Joe. I they, can see this happening. He's older. They probably don't want to do it with Rollins because they still see Rollins as the guy. They're not going to do it with Reigns or Balor. Yeah, you could be right. They could have put, put Bray Wyatt in the spot to squash him. Yeah, they, but they I, squashed Now, Wyatt. ratings, the ratings last week were up, and there was no reason for them to be up other than this Joe win, and that they put Joe over strong, and that Joe had a really strong interview. So it does actually appear like people give a fuck about this match. Like, Joe was really over at the end of that pay-per-view, and he was really over on Raw. Um, and sometimes Vince does pay attention to that. I mean, there's a if way I... to have Lesnar win that match and Joe still come out even more over. If I was booking the match, I'd put Joe over. Really? I'd put Joe over. Yeah, I still think... You can say, you can decide to switch the title back at SummerSlam, but I would put Joe over in the first match. I think because of what you did with Lesnar and Goldberg... He needs some strong wins. Yeah, I also wouldn't have booked the match at this point. I would have put Joe over, but I would have done it months and months from now. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can you can find like you can. Like, I would have if I if I was booking and I needed an emergency July opponent for Lesnar because Strowman got hurt. I would put Rollins in the match and have him get squashed. Yeah, that's what I do too, but they're not going to do it because he's Triple H's. But they're not. Yeah. I know. I would put, you know, because you don't have, you know, you've already done that with Ambrose. You can't do it with Ambrose. Could have done it with the Miz. You could have put Miz in there and had Miz get killed. Yeah. I think people would have really enjoyed seeing Miz get killed for 10 minutes by Brock Lesnar. Yeah. That's a match they could have done. Yeah, it's like uh, Miz is pretty Teflon for that kind of stuff. He can just come back out and be the Miz. And why, why it's so cold, I don't think he's an option. So I think your options are like Rollins, Miz, Joe. You could put Balor in that situation. It would have taken some steam off of him. They did have Balor take the technical submission loss in the five-way, which I also wouldn't have done. I would have had Joe choke out Wyatt there. 
Yeah. Balor. I mean, Balor did get to run his whole finishing sequence, so... Yes, Balor was, Balor was going to pin Reigns. Balor had a visual pinfall on Reigns when Joe got the choke in. Um, Reigns has also been beating everybody on television. Because that's, you know... It's, yeah, it's still... How are we keeping Roman Reigns strong for a year, but keeping him away from Brock Lesnar? Let's just have him beat everybody. Because this is good. Now, I did notice something. Hmm. Dean Ambrose does not have an angle. Seth Rollins does not have an angle. Roman Reigns does not have an angle. And they need to keep Roman Reigns away from Brock Lesnar. And they're all baby faces on Raw. They're obviously doing a Shield reunion pretty soon, right? I mean, you still have the... Is, They've been teasing it all over the place. Is Roman Reigns a baby face on Raw? <laughs> I'm assuming they're probably going to do a Shield reunion. Maybe for SummerSlam. That seems like the last thing they can try and do for Roman. And it just, it, it seems suspicious that, like, all these guys are baby faces on Raw and none of them have programs. Who do you... I don't know... What's the S.H.I.E.L.D. program? Triple H and Cronies, you know, Ugh. Triple H, Samoa Joe, and Bray Wyatt. Triple That's H, just... Samoa Joe, and a call-up. Triple H, Samoa Joe, and Elias Sampson. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is it just, a, you That's know... That's the problem. It's like, I mean, the Shield got over on their own, but you don't have that, like, hot opponent like the Wyatt family was at the time, or Evolution that wasn't Evolution. Or Team Hell No, originally, yeah. when they did that. You know, they had the never end. You know, the Shield feuded with Team Hell No for, like, eight months straight. Team Hell No and various partners. Ryback. The Undertaker, yeah. Randy Orton. I mean, they for literally eight months straight, they were doing The Shield versus Daniel Bryan, Kane, and a revolving person. And The Shield won almost every match until one day they didn't anymore. I mean, they literally won every match for, what was it, six months until they finally put Bryan over in one of them. Yeah, they don't have... I mean, they could form, you know, they could do the Shield versus Triple H, Sheamus, and Cesaro. I'm thinking out a bit. Samoa Joe, Sheamus, and Cesaro. They could find the trio if they want. I don't know. That thought just occurred to me that Roman Reigns is drifting in the wind with no program, and they're all baby faces on Raw, and they're teasing it again. Jared, it's after midnight, and I still have to edit this. Yeah, I have to be at work in seven hours and 40 minutes. So do I, and I still have to edit this. Yeah. So yeah, this was a show. We'll... It feels like you yelling about Ahmed Rosario was hours ago, probably because it was. Yeah. All right. Well, whatever. We'll do this again next week. On another edition, Jared will probably even be angrier. Uh, for all you kids out there.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.